What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. everybody, welcome back to the Grey Malkin Lane podcast, where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comics in continuity order. We have just wrapped up the incredible, uh, kind of trauma-dense, but also silly and delicious uh, Magneto month on my show through the month of October. This is the first uh, episode coming out in early November, where we get to jump back into the early 1970s, uh, where Magneto is just a ridiculous supervillain, uh, as drawn by Jack Kirby in today's issue which we will talk about as we review Fantastic Four number 102 in the latter half of our episode. Uh, but first, I am thrilled to welcome my friend Thorin Gronbeck to the show. Thorin, it's so good to see you. I'm also happy to welcome two new guests that I've been a fan of for a while. Uh, and I was so thrilled when they both agreed to come on the show. Uh, uh, Mr. Moriwa Ayodele, uh, I gotta make sure I get my pronunciations <laughs> right, and uh, Dotuna yeah. Kande. Let me have each of you introduce yourselves. Let us know where we might know you from, uh, your gender pronouns. And today's question, based on the thing's very awkward cold at the beginning of the Fantastic Four story, do you have any stories about an awkward sneeze or a time when you had a cold at an inappropriate time? Any stories that come up here are great. And if you don't have one, that's okay, too. Uh, let's begin with Moriwa, if we can. Hi, Moriwa. Hi. Um, so uh, my name is Moriwa Adele, Um gender pronouns he, him. Um, I've been, I worked with Marvel for a couple of years, worked on Moon Knight's Black, White and Blood, Avengers Unlimited, Infinity Comic, and um, the 60th anniversary series for uh, for Iron Man, titled I Am Iron Man. I was the writer on that. Um, I worked with Action Lab for a little bit on the comic called New Man. Um, Dotu and I also have a, a web comic on Webtoons called My Grandfather Was a God. It's where we kind of play around with um, Yoruba mythology and things like that. And um, I really don't get codes at all and not often. So, but um, the only Charlotte that was in secondary school, if you ever had the sniffles or anything, it's always very awkward because in the entire school, there are no mirrors. So sometimes you're scared if because I didn't like drip down your nose or anything or even <laughs> cleaned it properly. So you, you, so anytime somebody says that too much, I like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So you just keep cleaning your nose over and over throughout the day till you eventually get to a mirror in your home. So nothing too spicy. Uh fantastic. <laughs> it's so good to beat you. Uh and let's go to Dotun next. Hi. Hi, it's so good to be here. My name is Dotun Akonde. Um I have worked on everything Murua mentioned, that is Marvel Comics, Moon Knight, Black, White, and Blood issue one, Avengers Unlimited, Infinity Comic, um, 9 to 13, if I'm not mistaken, yeah, 9 to 13, and um, the 60th anniversary, I am Iron Man. I also worked on My Grandfather Was a God and New Men with Action Lab, yeah. Now, the awkward sneeze. While Murua was talking, I... I remembered something. I think in 2020, yeah, pandemic year, I was making something very spicy in the kitchen and then a sneeze came. Before I could react to like preparing myself for it, 
I sneezed into what I was cooking. This is disgusting, I know. I sneezed into what I was cooking. And I had to step back and think. Going <laughs> Do to I eat this? Or should I just throw everything away? I, it was so awkward and I was like, well, I said it's a disgusting story, so I actually ate it. It's mine. Oh, it's, <laughs> it's from me. So I did enjoy it though. I did not enjoy it. But that happened. That happened in 2020. Yes. That, that was it was that, really bad. That's always my biggest fear when I go out to eat. I'm like, I don't know what happened in the kitchen. <laughs> uh, and I'm so yeah. happy to welcome uh, Thorin back. Thorin, how are you? I'm good. Uh I'd say that my grandfather was a god is that the name of the book it's the best title yes. i've ever heard like i'm gonna i don't wow. know what it's about i don't know anything i'm gonna buy it the moment we're done recording that's amazing um but yeah i'm i'm torin grunbeck uh i'm i go by she her um i write comics for marvel right now i'm doing venom and carnage i just came off of thor um, and I'm doing Realm of X, which is sort of a, a mini series in the fall of X, uh, the current sort of the fall of the X-Men that's happening right now. Uh, um, which oh, is yeah. so good, by the way. I can't wait to uh, delve in a little bit. Oh, it's, it, this, this is interesting. I'm, um, I'm having a meltdown, but let's, let's talk about it later. Um, <laughs> but yeah, the awkward sneeze. I, the thing is, had I known, I know there are some other sneeze stories, but I, the first that came to mind was, uh, I'm on my way home from Thought Bubble. I'm hungover as fuck. And I mean, like, you know, I can't think properly. Uh, and I'm on like the tiny airport in Leeds. And there are some other Norwegians behind me, and I sneeze, and they say the Norwegian version of "God bless you," um, but I don't react, and I feel awkward about it. And we we don't talk to each other in general, Norwegians. We're very awkward, so I, I didn't turn around. But they apparently, based on that, figured, "Oh, she she's not Norwegian," and they proceeded to discuss the different ways they would do things to me for about 10 minutes or something and, and discuss my ass in detail and it was very awkward and then at some point I realized I gotta I gotta put an end to this I turn around and I go hey I am Norwegian so I, this is gonna be horrible for both of us anyway the like at the moment I say something the the flight attendant people they come on the PA system they go we're gonna be a little delayed so we're stuck there in this line together for another 45 minutes it was horrible that's anyway that's awful. my new story <laughs> that's really awkward <laughs> i'm so glad you stood up for yourself uh lastly i'm chad anderson uh, i use he him pronouns i'm a former marvel comics handbook writer the current host of this show i have a thing that happens to me about once a month for my whole life where i will get a sneeze attack and I'll just sneeze like a hundred times in a row. And I don't know what causes it. I can't predict like, it. I'm literally a hundred? Like 100? between like 40 and a hundred, literally. And it's usually, you know, every sneeze is like 30 seconds apart, maybe five seconds apart. But it's just ridiculous amounts of sneezing. And when I'm ever like in an airport or a public place, I just have to go find a like private spot because I know it's just going to be happening. I just sneeze and sneeze and mm. sneeze. I don't know why it happens. Thank God I'm not the thing because I would destroy entire buildings <laughs> every time. <laughs> I'd like raise communities right. with my th uh, with my sneezes. We'll talk about that in the issue today. Uh, I'm yeah, so excited I to have all of you on today. This is wonderful. Uh, Maria, go ahead. Yeah, I was saying that my mom doesn't sneeze once, like ever. It has to be twice. 
starts to be even numbers. I love a I love a so good sneeze. I love a good sneeze that has like a lot of character, like someone that has like a you know, like a or like <laughs> like they're the <laughs> yeah yeah big sounds that are characteristic. Uh, this is in a- Norway. There is a thing like if if you sneeze three times in a row, the weather is going to be good tomorrow. So that's that's always what we aim for, like three sneezes, and we know the weather is going to be good. What happens we if are, there's a hundred uh, sneezes? Well, the thing is, I think what happens is that you need to see someone. I think that's what should happen. Uh, but I don't know. Man, when I get to like 70 sneezes, I, I'll like sit down on the couch and be like, oh my God, I don't have anything left. In me. <laughs> <Keep coming. laughs> uh, this is a truly international podcast today, which is really fun. I'm in Salt Lake City. Uh, you guys are in Europe and Africa accordingly. Uh, it's really wonderful to have all of you on today. And I'm uh, I'm just I'm just genuinely a huge fan of each of yours. So thank you for being here. Uh, I would love, uh, Moriwa, if you'll begin here, I would love to hear a little bit about your origin story story, uh, how you became a comic book professional, how you and Dotun first met. Uh, if we could begin there, that'd be great. Yeah, that's the thing about uh, comic origin stories. It's usually linked, like how we got to start working on comics. Uh, Dotun and I met in um, university. Uh, we became friends pretty early on from like the first year. We sort of kind of admired each other from afar. And then Little by little, um, I started hearing more about Dotu and his work. He, he started out in, with graphics designs, logo designs. So uh, I think one, uh, one, uh, on a particular day, there was another student that was like drawing uh, a portrait. And Dotu says, oh, yeah, you can adjust this, do this, and then it's one. I'm like, dude, like, we know you can't draw. Why are you, why are you showing off here? And he's like, yeah, I can draw. And I was like, ah. So, it took like a couple of years later before I discovered that damn this guy can draw. So since then he sure then, can. I've always <laughs> <laughs> and since then I've always pestered him. I'm always writing like maybe novels, anything like can you do a cover for me? Can you do everything for me? It took years before he could actually draw something for me. I was always pestering, always saying he's too busy to work on a comic with me. But we we used to work in uh, software development. So at that aspect, he actually gives me UI and UX designs to work on, but just never drawn artwork. So it was until after we left the university that we started uh, a comic book studio together called Collectible Comics. And we're, we're the only two, <laughs> the only two creators there. But uh, yeah, and we've been working ever since um, clients in Europe, US, Nigeria. And yeah, the likes. I think that's all. Is that all? I've answered the entire question. No, that's fantastic. How did you get your start at Marvel? Um, it's uh, we we worked with Action Lab on um, New Men, but we hadn't gotten paid yet or anything. And um, we were like, okay, and there was no other projects coming in. And we're trying to, and most of the comics that we're doing also, Nigerian readers could not get access to them. Comixology, there was no access to comixology in Nigeria, and you couldn't, so all the books we were doing outside the country, Nigerians could not read them. And we wanted to just create a little comic that Nigerians could read. 
So we walked on. My grandfather was a god as a webtoon. Uh, there's webtoon access in Nigeria. So and while we're working on it, we're like, okay, you know what? Let's send this out to like all the creators that we really, really liked. I think we joined IMDb Pro, tried sending it to Gendi Tatakovsky's agents. We were just being um, foolishly confident. So we also sent to Tom Brevo, like, hey, Tom Brevo, uh, I think you would like this, since he also worked with um, Gendi Tatakovsky on um, Cage. Yeah, so he checked it out. He really, he said he just read the first two issues. He really liked it. Do we want to come and work on the Moon Knight story that he's working on? He asked us our favorite characters, even though we didn't list Moon Knight, but like, do you want to work on Moon Knight? And we're like, yeah, sure, definitely. And uh, when we were signing the contract, we had country issues and stuff like that, but we eventually got all that sorted out and then we worked on Moon Knight. So. And we'll be working with Tom mostly since then. That's fantastic. Tom I've had Tom on the show a few times. He's such a great guy. Uh, making Tom laugh is one of my favorite things, actually. I really like <laughs> him a lot. Uh, Dotun, let me ask you a little bit about your origins as well. Uh, I would specifically love to hear uh, some of the characters and artists you grew up loving and like your origin as a penciler and artist yourself. Okay, so um, I grew up watching a lot of cartoons and um, somehow I found some French cartoons in my house. I don't know how that happened, but I fell in love with the simplicity and the clean line arts and everything. There was a particular one about a cat, which was, I think, an adult cartoon, if I remember correctly. And I can't remember the name again. It was an adult cartoon, I told you about the cat. I've been looking at this for some time now. <clears throat> then um, there was a new station, a new station or a new TV program back then on um, Silver Bird, Nigeria or something. They kept showing um, Silver Hawk every day, every day of yeah, Silver Hawk. I think that was the only thing they had at the time. Then they added um, Son of Krypton, um, Superman, Son of Krypton. I fell in love with Silver Hawk and the mute kid, the guy who had the speech impairment or something. I don't know if you know Silver Hawk. <laughs> so Silver Hawk was one very important cartoon then. Then we had um, this um, um, digital satellite, DSTV, DSTV from South Africa. And then we, I, I, I got to explore and I found um, Samurai Jack, Dexter's Lab, um, Powerpuff Girls. Somehow, I this is a, you're talking about my childhood, like mid 1980s, like Thundercats era. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. I fell in love with these cartoons only for, okay, fast forward to like maybe when I was in um, university and I met Murewa. And maybe after that, then we started talking about the cartoons we liked and we kept mentioning the same things. And then we realized that there was a mind behind these cartoons that we liked. And then we discovered that oh, there's this guy called Gendi Tatakovsky. And yes, yeah, so I think he played a primary role in my you know, interest in cartoons and making comics. Then there was a Zeta project. So basically, it started with cartoons. Then my brother got me my first comic book, which was a DC comic, and it was um, Superboy. Yeah, Superboy. He had this jacket, black jacket, and I think red yeah. or something. Fantastic. And I got to school, this was high school, I met this girl, 
whose brother somehow always found a way to bring in foreign comics. And I was like blown away. I was always begging, I'll do anything for you. Can I just have this book for the weekend? You know, then I would draw some characters from the book and keep somewhere. I almost stole some pages. I was, I really need, I begged and begged for these books. <laughs> you know, I begged, I really begged for the books. I think she gave me one because of an Archie comic. And I didn't like Archie then, but I drew to like it. But yeah, <laughs> so yeah, started with cartoons, animation, Tom and Jerry even, and then comic books. Then I go back home, maybe when I was on vacation, because I now have comic books. I've come in touch with comic books. I started pausing things I was watching to draw each frame and try to create like a movie or a comic book out of you know, what I was drawing. So then I started creating my stories. And then I saw how difficult it was to write a story and create your world. And I was blown away, like, how are these people coming up with stories? And I fell in love with writers and I had so much respect for writers. And I said, okay, you know what? I'm not writing anything anymore. I'm just going to keep drawing. I'll just keep drawing things, keep saving them in my big folder till the folder cannot close anymore. That was the plan. Now, in recent years, I should say from um, 2016, I guess, I fell in love with Brian K. Vaughan. I fell in love with Mark Miller. Um, my um, Bendis, Bendis, yeah, Jonathan Jickman, um, Dana Warren Johnson. There are a lot of there are a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of people there. But these are like the people I can remember, right? So it's been a fun ride. It started with cartoons, basically. I uh, I want to talk to both of you about your work uh, in just a moment. I have some comments I want to make and ask some questions I want to ask. But let me ask uh, Thorin a question really quickly. Uh, Thorin, I was so happy to have you on the show previously. And you hinted at the end that there was stuff coming up for you with uh, with some X characters. And right after that, Realm of X was announced. Uh, I got to kind of sing your praises, uh, your work and your narration style. Uh, and now Realm of X, uh, you're mixing your love of the Asgardian uh, craziness, uh, the, the stuff that you love to write so much with a really delicious cast of characters. Uh, Marrow and uh, and Dust and uh, Typhoid Mary, man, she's one of my favorites of all time. Uh, I would love to hear a little bit about how Realm of X came to be and particularly how you picked these characters uh, for your cast. It's a really fun group of people. Well, we, we had this, we knew we had to have sort of dispersed the X-Men, the mutants around, uh, du like during and after the fall. Uh, and there was this idea of maybe one of them could be, like a group of people could be swung, like either to Asgard or to one of the other realms. Um, and we had this sort of vague idea what we wanted to do. Um, we knew we wanted the team to be all female. Um, and that, that was pretty much it. That was what we knew. It was it was titled Valkyries of X for a while, um, which sort of implied that Danny Moonstar would be one of them uh, and magic because magic is magic. But other than that, we sort of, they sort of just let me pick and choose. So I sort of just went for, um, I needed, given the story, I, I wanted it to be sort of a, a, a team with a lot of friction. Um, and Mary, Marov and Mary will certainly sort of provide some friction. 
They sure will. <laughs> um, yep. uh, and Dust has always been a sort of favorite of mine, and I, I think she's heavily underutilized. And I think you like. I, I feel. I felt like if I have an opportunity to bring her along, then we should certainly do so. Um, but it's been an interesting ride. I, I find. I find I, I keep struggling with because I know what makes a good like Thor comic. I think I know what makes a good Thor comic, um, and and sort of the playing around in the the realms sort of a comic. But X Men is a different sort of beast. Um, so it's been interesting trying to combine those two sort of the heavy fantasiness of Vanaheim with the X Men. Doesn't necessarily feel fantasy in any way, but it's been exceptionally fun quite difficult and i keep asking people like so, so what do you think makes a good x-men comic like what 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 is the answer um and it's uh, I, I still don't have one i think it's just you need you know a lot of punching uh quite a lot of drama and quite a bit of horniness and you should be fine <laughs> but this is sort of a strange sort of balance there but it, it's it's been it's been fun. You know, there's a lot of X-Men history, and it hasn't been done in a while, of kind of this epic fantasy. Uh, we have these, like, long stints of the New Mutants in Asgard, or the old X-Men Alpha Flight limited series that, that puts them there. Storm with Thor's hammer, right? There's a there's a lot of connections to these realms. Vanaheim is a really interesting choice. Uh, and the way you're utilizing prophecy and the division in these characters who are experiencing all, all kinds of different traumas. You know, Mary being away from her husband, magic's powers out of control, curse feeling very abandoned. Curse, uh, I know it's a child and I apologize, but Curse is the most punchable character <laughs> I've ever seen. Uh, I, think, I think she, I think we will all agree that you, I, and I think I, she, she can take a punch. She's she's fine. She's going to be fine. Uh, no, I do, I do absolutely agree. It's been, um, but I think Curse is, she is so like all of us, right? Like we we all have a tiny curse inside of us somewhere, sort of self-absorbed little brat. Um, so writing her has been oddly enjoyable. Um, writing a magic who feels really off has been quite hard, especially as so many of the sort of magic fans will necessarily react to it because magic is supposed to be um, sort of in control and and a leader and sort of know what to do and what to say at least to a certain extent um but it's been a, an interesting challenge and i i do hope that people see what we're trying trying to do with all the old nonsense i do wish we had i would say five more issues or something because i keep falling into um sort of things that could have been exceptionally interesting if we had enough pages to do it, but we like we we it's a medium we have to get to the point right. Yeah, um, yeah. It's it's fun to see Saturnine back. Uh, she was so widely explored during Teeny Howard's various runs. Uh, uh, it's fun to see her as kind of the the person uh, behind all of this. And Vanaheim is such an interesting choice. It's one of the realms at Marvel that's been around so long, but has really never been explored. There's so few Thor stories even set in Vanaheim. That was a fascinating choice. Well, and th I think it's odd because Vanaheim is one of those, and this, I mean, it sounds horrible when I go on, like, that's one of those where I used to spend my childhood dreams. Like, I don't know. It was, it, it's one of those places that I was felt like was most connected to Asgard. Um, and, and though there have been some Marvel stories set sort of in Vanaheim or adjacent to it, um, they have a 
exceptionally interesting history. It's a beautiful place. Uh, it seems sort of ripe for exploitation, which is sort of what Saturnine is doing. Um, and I think the sort of the the, the pride and the um, uh, sort of the, the choices that the Vanir has made to keep their life as simple as it is, um, is in itself sort of interesting. So when you have someone who who wants to take advantage of the of sort of the soil and the earth and everything, that is something they have at some point chosen not to do themselves because the Vanir was as technolo technologically advanced as Asgard at some point. I talk about this as their real people all of them I, these I, are real places yeah so yeah i clear. love i love anytime i'm seeing someone draw upon their own cultural heritage in in a comic book form and that makes you perfect to write about Vanaheim of all places. i mean if if my childhood daydreams are cultural something or other like yeah let that that would be true but it, it is one of those like it's it's mentioned a few times in in um like the old like in snorre um, the sagas and everything, but it's just like a sentence here and there. So most of the lore that exists around Vanaheim is either made by Marvel or other people, right? Um, but I think the way that Marvel has taken Vanaheim is exceptionally interesting, and I do love the idea of a realm where um, you're so familiar with the future that you sort of just need to stay in the moment at all times, because You've you've learned from a very young age that everything that matters is this moment we're in right now, which I enjoy. Uh, all three of you, and this is an interesting connection because you work on very different characters, but all three of you are so great at kind of the epic fantasy feel to your writing. Uh, Dotuna, a question for you. You are... Uh, an artist unlike anyone I've quite seen before. If I chose a single favorite image that you've drawn, it's in Iron Man 25. And there's a two-page spread of Iron Man trapped in Jotunheim. And it's just this like frigid, frozen wasteland. And it is so stunning. Uh, the way you draw monsters, the way you take up space on a page and use a lot of grays and darker tones and silvers uh, is really magical. I'm really excited to announce this in advance uh, and take your time, of course. But uh, Dotun's going to be an doing an image of Nightcrawler for my wall, which I'm very, very excited about. I adore your art style. I would love to hear how you approach this kind of level of epic fantasy in, in your pencils. Hmm. Interesting question. Um, I think I just prefer to keep things simple with my lines, and I suspect that is some French influence. I'm not too sure, but I suspect. But I I like to take more tougher decisions while I'm coloring. I think I prefer to set my mood when I'm coloring than using line weights and black inks and all that. They are fantastic too. I mean, I grew up reading DC comics and I saw a lot of that and I loved them. But I wasn't just, I've never been comfortable replicating that. It's its always to, to me, showy. And I, I many times want the colors. I don't think real life is like that, except we want to show um, some type of mood and I, and I don't want to put that mood in all the pages, in all the panels, in all the scenes. Sometimes it doesn't have to be like Noah. If it is Noah, fine. But when it's fantasy, I think the colors should do the heavy lifting most times. So that page you saw, 
I think myself and Mera had a conversation. We wanted it to be dreamy, wanted it to be like painted and all that with very few lines. With very few lines, not too noticeable lines and all that. So yeah, it's coming from I think a French in French, you know, source that I really liked when I was growing up. I uh, I adore your work with Iron Man in particular because you get to use kind of the glowing lights of his armor against these kind of deep dark uh, colors. Uh, the way you drew Anubis yeah. in your Moon Knight and Spider Man adventure was also really beautiful. Uh, I, I I love your work, man. I think it's I think it's really really impressive. Uh, and the way you do color and ink on top of your own pencils is also really fascinating. I'm I'm thrilled. I'm really excited about the Nightcrawler print. It's going to be uh, a great addition. Uh, uh, Marie, one of the things I'm most impressed with about your work is your approach to continuity. Iron Man, as an example, is a character that is so densely drowning in continuity. He has been dead. He's reanimated himself. His company has started and stopped about 75 times at this point. There's so much intense drama. When you guys did the I, I Am Iron Man series, you found a way to... Every issue feels extremely unique from every other. Uh, and the way that you chose to explore the way Iron Man is a hero from these different perspectives, like his connection to his mother or him as a hero itself, you didn't have to dive into this deep continuity, but you found ways to use it to really fuel your stories without uh, without losing us in it, which is a, a, a delicate thing for uh, a writer to do. You also bring a lot of humor in, right? We get these gorgeous images, but then a joke about, uh, you know, Hope shooting himself into space with a gamma fart. <laughs> you have these ways of making me smile as you write as well. I would love to hear a little bit about your approach to continuity. Okay, um, just before I respond to that, I'll say something, I'll add something to what Dutton also said. Um, I also think uh, some of Dutton's influence also comes from um, Fiona Staples' paintings in Saga, like in the background work. I think that was also a strong influence in that um, Yilton Ein full spread. Yeah, and uh, I, I also wanted to give a little info. Um, the Anubis in um, Moon Knight's Black, White, and Blood as dreads almost like the Negroes. I always make fun of him that he drew Anubis like the Negroes. <laughs> so yeah, um, concerning my um, approach to Iron, to I Am Iron Man uh, and continuity, um, the first thing is I love Iron Man as a character. I, I, I always tell, every time I have the opportunity to say it, I say he's like my favorite character in all of fiction, like novels, movies, anything. That's how much I love the character. And so it's the way he has been portrayed since like the 1960s till now has always been different. And, and I was fascinated with those changes. And that's what I try to show in I Am Iron Man. That's why each of those, each, of, each issue was so starkly different because they're also trying to mimic the era, at least through my lens anyway and still have a little cohesiveness there. And um, yeah, working with continuity on the series was very, very stressful, even though I like the character. I had to go back to read comics of that period. What was the tone they were going with? In the early 2000s, for example, um, Iron Man was usually in espionage stories, um, both in um, Mass Fractions run and in um, 
um, again, um, director of Shield. I am a director of Shield, so it was it was mostly espionage stories. So that's what I did for issue four. But I just tried to put a little extra into what if it is horror espionage. I, I know that it's not genres that are usually combined often. So I tried to work with it. Lovecraftian horror meets espionage. How do we make it work? So and um, yeah, and in issue one we see um Stan and Larry Lieber playing around with what they saw as cutting edge science of the time. So I tried to also mix it with what is cutting edge science by our definition now. So it's both it's basically just mixing things up, using as much of the story that I've researched. Uh, I I what what I found out with um comics now, both in, in the big two comics is we usually have um, stories where continuity doesn't matter, and we have some that references um, continuity very deeply, and it's very enjoyable when you see those references, when you see those references in comics. But for new readers, because the two and I are also relatively new readers to comics, you sometimes feel pushed away from the story because you don't understand the things they are referencing. So we 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 went to the approach of referencing through thematics. So if you've read those stories before, it will feel familiar. If you've not read those stories before, you don't feel like you're missing anything. It's like um, Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars. If you read it with the original Secret Wars, you'll see a lot of reoccurring things without necessarily strong references. So when I was reading, I read Jonathan Hickman's Secret Wars first, so I didn't feel like I was missing anything. So when I read the original, I was like, oh, so this way you got this concept, this way you got the concept, and so that's the kind of approach I was going with for the story. That if you read I Am Iron Man, you would enjoy it as a new reader. If you go back to read the original comics, it just makes it much more enjoyable. And as for the humor, um, Bendis is a very strong influence to Doctor and myself. We really love <laughs> Bendis and his work, especially his work on Iron Man, um, International Iron Man, especially. It was it was very funny. It was very action packed. And that was the approach we took to um, Spider-Man in our Moon Knight story and Iron Man 2. Yeah, where Moon, Moon Knight's to... like, uh, are you just asking me to do Egyptian stuff? And Spider-Man's like, no, no, it's not <laughs> Egyptian stuff. We're just going after the scarab that got stolen. And he's like, dude, that's Egyptian stuff, man. Like, <laughs> it's pretty funny. You 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 naturally work that humor into your scripts, which is really fun. My single favorite issue of Iron I Am Iron Man is the second one. The uh, the telepathic kind of mutated sardine was such a surprise yeah. to me. It was a really fun way to explore. I, I think it was called the man with the bleeding heart, right? It was it was such a, a yeah. fun way to explore yeah. Iron Man's vulner vulnerability uh, as he kind of put himself into this unfamiliar realm. You don't have to go to outer space to find that. You can do that in the ocean. Uh, it was such an unexpected story uh, and so beautifully uh, seeing Dotun draw kind of the depths of the ocean. Uh, it was it was really great. That was my single favorite of uh, of the two of yours. I I, I was I loved it. Uh, it was the most uh, personal one as well. Um, um, I grew up with an art condition, so um, but I, I did surgery when I was four. So and the art condition is basically my art was actually bleeding out. So that's and I also noticed that uh, some of the early meanings of bleeding hearts is sympathy and empathy. Something I think Tony Stark had. And with the shrapnel in his heart too, his heart was literally bleeding. So I wanted to play around with all those concepts. And um, in that era of Iron Man as well, um, 
I am an Adli, there was a story that was under the ocean, but I think the, in his first, yeah, in the first um, issue of Invincible Iron Man, he, he had the story that was under the sea and stuff like that. And I just wanted to play around with, we don't see Iron Man a lot. We see Iron Man a lot in the sky, on land, but not under the sea. So I wanted to play around with that. And the stories during that era were very, very wacky. They were, they were almost silly, in fact, like the kind of antagonists they would face. So we wanted to play around with that. Like, okay, you know what? What do we do? Let's make Iron Man talk to a sardine and let's him have existential crisis while talking to a sardine. And yeah, that was where we're going with the story. You kind of made me like Iron Man more with this series, which is, I mean, I like the character, but he's certainly not my favorite, but I loved seeing how much you love him. He's also currently married to uh, Emma Frost in the in the X-Men yes, books. Yeah. So we're seeing Iron Man in his kind of X-Men era right now, which is a lot of fun. Uh, Thor, or Thorne and I got to talk about Emma last time uh, she was on the show, which was uh, so well received. Uh, Thorne, I know there's a lot of things changing in the X-Men world right now. We're getting ready to... Uh, we're going through Fall of X, right? There's another kind of section happening after that. And then the editorial uh, departments are shifting. Tom Brevoort's going to be taking over the X-Men franchise. So uh, what's it like working in the X office these days with this group of uh, talented creators, many of whom I'm thrilled to call a friend because of this show? Uh, how how has that been working in this uh, very tight-knit office? I think it's, it's always a joy. There, you, you have these exceptionally brilliant and very funny people and we have a sort of x like that people are on all the time making jokes and um people are sharing pages that are beautiful and and covers that come in and it's just sort of it's the closest thing you get to having any sort of colleagues in this job uh which is just brilliant um and i think like most people think uh, like most of the x-men writers has at some point or another worked with tom before um and we all love tom right like even though he is like he he doesn't give praise very easily. I think that's sort of the um, that that's we're all terrified and we're always trying to just. The Thorn uh, says that everyone's like, yep, yep. <laughs> no, we're just, but that that's sort of the joke, right? Like if Tom goes, oh, it's good. We're like, oh fuck, thank God, it's probably brilliant. Uh, I I've yeah. gotten like one. I love it from him once, and I I was like on cloud nine for the rest of the day. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think it's it's a good place to be. Having said that, like I don't pay like I I'm so bad. I'm slightly surprised by today's date at all times. You know what I mean? Um, so I don't pay attention to what is out in the world and and what is not out in the world um so I, i'll i'll try not to say anything or spoil anything um because obviously we're working quite far ahead yeah and i mean i'll say uh two issues of realm of x are out the third will be out before we put this show out if that helps oh right 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 <laughs> i should have sent you the third one so you could have read it I, I, um wait when i love that uh, yeah, but it, it's uh, but but I, I keep I keep blundering up, saying things I shouldn't. But I will say that it, it is a joy, and and they are uh, all the X Men writers are pretty much as funny and delightful as you think they would be. Um, uh, and there is, I think, the the moment when I I, I was invited to the Slack, I had one of those. Oh shit! They're all just so funny uh and smart and i feel like i feel so norwegian i never know what to say to anything but it's, it's nice just having them there so sort of a, I don't know, 
Uh, you're also very funny. One of my single favorite, like favorite moments ever hosting this show, uh, and I've done over 200 episodes, is you asking me, "When did Americans stop being so horny?" No, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't know, but I mean, it's a valid question. It's a valid fucking question. So that's what I'm saying. Uh, we're going to transition into our issue review in a moment, but I would love to hear from, uh, uh, I got to ask Thorne this before, but uh, from Dotun and, and Murila, what is your connection to the X-Men as fans? Uh, are you guys X-Men fans? Are you familiar with kind of their old continuity? What, what's it like jumping into this kind of old adventure in the Fantastic Four? Uh, I would love to hear a little bit of your uh, preliminary thoughts. Okay. Um, um, I got introduced to the X-Men through several articles and videos online where you just read about the X-Men. And then I heard that if you want to get into the X-Men, the place to start is um, in the animated series, X-Men the animated series, the original one, the one I think in the 80s, I think, that is mostly based on Chris Clement's stuff. So yeah, I watched the entire series of that and I was crazy hooked. And since then I've been um, following the current X-Men stuff and also reading past issues. Mostly the core thing, the core stories you you're told to read. Yeah, and yeah. Mostly Dark Phoenix and yeah, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And mostly everything coming out now. We've uh, we've been loving it. And uh Ikman created this super jumping on point that we're like, yeah, now we're invested. Like everything X-Men, we're reading it, that kind of thing. So it's it's yeah, it's it's been it's been really good. Um Speaking think, of the uh, uh, speaking of the animated series, I had the esteemed honor on a professional level recently to uh, host a panel uh, in person with uh, the voice actors from the animated series, which was such a cool thing. Wow. It was like a neat feather in my cap. <laughs> well, it was really cool. fun. Yeah, yeah. That's really cool. that's really really cool. Yeah, I think the X Men character I'm most fascinated with right now is uh, Maggots. A lot of people like him, so and I, I, I think I've been. I was so frustrated, but why would you like this character? And more and more, the more I'm, the more I'm thinking about the more I think I'm liking the character as well. I mean, uh, his connection to South Africa and apartheid alone makes him really fascinating. Uh, I know that Steve Fox has got some cool stuff planned for Maggot in Dark X-Men right now, too, which I'm uh, excited about. Uh, Dotun, uh, same question. What's your connection to the uh, the X-Men? Basically the same story. Um, the animated series was the first thing I saw. And... Um, X-Men Evolution, that was like, I think, 2000 to 2004, I guess. Um, then I stumbled on some comics in school with the friend I mentioned. And I saw the books and I was like, I know this, this I, I see this at home on TV. This is an amazing comic. Um, I didn't care much about the writers or creative thing then because the characters were the realest thing to me, the realest thing yeah. to me. Then I think I forgot about the X-Men and just stayed with DC for a while. Then Spider-Man and Iron Man, then Jonathan Hickman came up with Powers of X, House of X, you know? And it was it was another jumping off point that really made me stay. And I'm like, okay, okay, this is serious stuff and I need to know what is happening and I need to go back and maybe check um, the app, the Marvel app, and try and catch up with everything I had missed because I really wanted to be in tune and I wanted to know everything happening on Twitter because I saw a lot of conversations and I didn't know anything. In fact, you mentioned Margot, Marewa. 
um, I think you even introduced me to the character, yes. So I didn't know much about many of these other characters and I felt like I was a stranger to this thing I loved before. So it was that Jonathan Hickman run that made me feel like, okay, I need to get back on the X-Men. I really loved the X-Men growing up and I forgot about them. They came back now. As soon as they come out on the um, app, how am I forgetting the name of the app? Marvel Unlimited. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Once they come out on the app, I'm jumping on and reading as 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 many as I can. Yeah. Yeah. The this the strange thing about having limited access to comics like when we were growing up is um sometimes I'm not sure how you even know some things. Like sometimes I'm reading a comic and I'm and I just know who the character's name is and I'm like, how do I know the who the character's name is? So sometimes I'm not even sure. Is it through the movie? Is it through the animated series? Is it through one article you read on Bleeding Cool? Is it through Rob uh, Comics Explained by Rob on YouTube? You're not sure anymore because everything is just, you just know the stories, you just know the characters. You're not even sure how you got to know those characters. So that memories, that's yeah. a strange thing. Yeah. Well, there, and there's so and there's so much access to everything now. The reason I chose to do the Silver Age on my show is because that's the stuff nobody pays attention to or talks about, which is going to be uh, a lot of fun. I'm really excited to hear all of our commentary on today's issue. I'm mostly excited to hear Thorin talk about Crystal. <laughs> how did you know? Like, how could you know, Chad? Uh, I've met you now. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Uh, so last night, uh, last night, my husband and I had uh, Philip CV and his partner Christy Porter over. We had drinks, and I was telling them I was recording with you today. So Philip said to tell you hello. I will. Uh, I'll oh, do that that's quickly so nice. Before we go in, uh, okay, we're going to be talking about Fantastic Four number one hundred two today. And uh, the FF have had a lot of space on my show because they team up with the uh, the X Men quite often in the nineteen sixties. This issue is really famous for one particular reason. It's the last issue of Stanley and Jack Kirby's epic 102 issue run on the Fantastic Four. This is uh, Kirby. He he still drew the FF later. Stanley and Jack Kirby did not get along particularly later in their career, but they had an epic long, one of the most historic runs in comic books of all time. And it ends with this issue, which is crazy because the next issue is drawn by John Bashama, even though it's a direct continuation from this story. Uh, I don't know if you guys have any thoughts or uh, reverence in particular for Jack Kirby's work. Uh, anyone have thoughts on Kirby? Like, other than that, he's fucking Jack Kirby and the. <laughs> I, I don't know what you're talking like. It's it's Jack Kirby. Mark Wade did an issue of the Fantastic Four in the early 2000s where the Fantastic Four literally go to heaven and they meet God and God is Jack Kirby. Jack yeah, Kirby. That checks out. That checks out. Like, all yeah. of that makes sense to me. <laughs> yeah, really, really beautiful stuff. Uh, so this issue is from September 1970. It's Stanley and Jack Kirby. Uh, Joe Sinnott's the inker. Uh, it's really beautifully done. They did not credit the colorists back then. Uh, I'm going to give you a quick recap. Uh, Magneto in the 1960s. Again, we just did a ton of exploring of this character on my show in October. But back then, before he had all the motivation and the uh, you know the concentration camp backstory, he was just kind of the the crazy supervillain. He was like the X Men's Doctor Doom 
Bloom in a lot of ways, uh, who's just kind of ranting and insane. Uh, his recent history in the comics at this point, he had tried forcing a reunion of the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. Uh, he went to the United Nations and demanded a country for mutants. Uh, he ended up lost at sea. He wound up in the Savage Land where he created the Savage Land Mutates. Uh, then he was defeated again. We got to see this era of his history picked up in John Burns' The Hidden Years from the early 2000s, which we recently covered on my show in detail. And the end of The Hidden Years, uh, John Byrne involves this particular story from the Fantastic Four at the end of his run on The Hidden Years later. So it sets Magneto up for this story here. Uh, John Byrne also reveals, uh, this is ret retroactive continuity, that Professor X is present during a lot of these stories as an astral presence, kind of talking to Magneto or Reed Richards, involving himself in these events in between the panels of what we're about to read. But go back and listen to my reviews of uh, X-Men The Hidden Years, 19 through 22 on this show, uh, released earlier this year, if you want more commentary on that. Uh, today's issue is called The Strength of the Submariner. The Fantastic Four have gone through a lot of changes uh, at this point. The Invisible Girl has a little baby named Franklin Richards, who often gets left with Agatha Harkness at Whisper Hill. She's his nanny. Uh, <laughs> we'll see that character here. She has a, a familiar, a magical familiar named Ebony, who's a black cat. Crystal is on the team at this point. Uh, and that's kind of all you need. They're living in the Baxter building, and it's kind of a fun era of wonky science as we delve into the Fantastic Four in the early 70s. Before we jump into the content of today's issue, uh, I would love to hear from you guys. Is this an era of continuity, like the early Fantastic Four that you're familiar with or fond of? What was it like for you to jump into this kind of nonsensical, <laughs> crazy issue? Uh, I would love to hear some of your thoughts preliminarily. Uh, Thorin, what about you? The thing is, I've never really, like, the Fantastic Four is sort of, I, I know them, but I've never read the comics. I know that's horrible, but it's true. Um, so this this was quite new to me in a lot of ways. I think I'm mostly familiar with the Fantastic Four through uh, Agatha in many ways. Um, I, I did a sort of introduction to Agatha on Marvel Unlimited, and that's the only reason why I've read this issue before. Um, so to me, it is one of those, I realized I would have been a different person if I'd had this when I was a kid. Uh, and I would probably have like, just inhaled it as a kid. Now I'm a little more like, what, what's going on? Okay. <laughs> we're, we're, this is what we're doing. We can do it. I don't know. It's fun. Uh, Dotun, how about you? Are you, uh, are you an FF fan? Well, I am a new FF fan. I wasn't, I just knew the characters through the movies, yes. But I remember now that I found a silent comic in school, Fantastic Four. They said nothing throughout. And it was, it was one of the best things I'd seen then. But I was not a fan. I only became a fan very recently. So I'm not particularly familiar with this era. I only know a few things because of the research work we did you know, building characters and all that, yeah. Uh, and then, uh, Dotun, I'll ask you the same question, but I'm going to direct it at Magneto. Are you a Magneto fan? Oh, yes, I am a Magneto fan. Yeah. Uh, how about you, Maria? I, I was listening to your latest podcast, I guess. You had someone on who kept saying Magneto. Yes. <laughs> and, I, and I kept laughing. And it made sense, because judging by Magnet. English law, it should We're, be Magneto. Uh, 
we're recording this on October 2nd, which I just put out an episode today with an interview with J.M. DeMatteis. And we talk a lot about the magneto-magneto pronunciation. <laughs> uh, how about you, Bernie? Are you a Magneto fan? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, I love Magneto uh, um, from every every iteration of the character. I've always loved my, mm -hmm. Magneto, including even with Al Ewing all the way back to how he's been handled in um, Secret Wars by, uh, um, oh my God. Jim Shooter, right? My... Yeah, Jim Shooter. So yeah, um, the Fantastic Four, I, I discovered the Fantastic Four to, Fantastic Four fans are going to kind of hate what I'm about to say, but I've loved every Fantastic Four movie, including including the last one where, um, uh, I forgot the name of any of Jordan. the um, Michael B. Jordan was the yeah. Flash. Yeah, I liked it too. I I liked everything Fantastic Four. I I liked the cartoon the most. I think in two thousand and six, and it's it, it's basically a major influence in even my approach to storytelling. How they have this episodic uh, monster of the week kind of stories and stuff like that. I really like Fantastic Four and. Um, Occasionally, I go back to read some of the classic comics, like in the 1960 comics by uh, Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. So I'm just a little familiar with their yeah, type of storytelling and everything. I, that's one of the reasons I was, I was very, very surprised by this book because a lot of um, Stan Lee icks were not present. There weren't, um, there weren't narrations that just went on and on explanations of things uh even explanations of powers had dropped there were some power moves that were like wow no explanation you didn't describe it didn't make us so it was it felt like a modern comic for uh a comic in the um that started in the 1960s i really really enjoyed reading this it was very very nice uh, we're going to be doing three issues of this run because Magneto's in all three, which is fun. There's a moment in the next issue where the thing dives in the water and spins around to create a whirlpool, which is not how science works. There's a lot of crazy research <laughs> <laughs> back here. Uh, the last thing I want to introduce is uh, the Submariner. We haven't seen him on my show in a while. The Submariner is established as a mutant in X-Men number six, which is a story where Magneto tries to recruit him. Uh, he very quickly is like, I don't want to be involved with either side. But this is one of the very few characters that Magneto actually respects. And uh, we'll, we'll lean into Thorne here. Thorne, I know you I know you love, know you love a soap opera and uh, horny characters. Namor is horny for Susan uh, and also Dorma. Susan is horny for Namor, uh, but Magneto is also horny for Namor. <laughs> I feel like if you'd sold, sold this comic, sold Fantastic Four to me this way instead, I would have been there before. I would have been like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Let's read some Fantastic Four. Uh, so, uh, Namor, we recently got to see in, uh, the new Black Panther movie, uh, in a live action format where it shows Atlantis and the Atlantean army in such an impressive capacity. Uh, it doesn't have the same amount of impressiveness on the page when just drawn, but I want you to, as you read this issue, listeners, picture the way you saw Namor and the army portrayed in the Black Panther movie, because that makes this really impressive. Namor is the king of an undersea kingdom that has access to technology and magic and all kinds of things. And that makes this uh, issue much more impressive if you picture kind of the modern visuals. 
this is a really fun issue. On the cover, we see Namor leading his undersea army to attack the Fantastic Four, who are very surprised. Uh, Johnny is half on fire. The Thing has his fists raised, and the, the caption says, this is the one you've been waiting for. Uh, this is a super fun issue. Let's go ahead and dive in. Uh, Dotun, will you take us through the first few pages and kind of tell us your thoughts at, about what happens? So, um, how do I do this? Do I just explain, like, give a summary? Yeah, yeah, and I'm here to I'm here to provide support. Just kind of tell us uh, what happens and what your thoughts were. It's uh, it's very very relaxed. Okay, so I'm going to say this how I felt while reading. If, if that is fine. Perfect. Yeah. Okay. So first thing I see is the cover, and like you mentioned, um, Johnny is ablaze. I'm uh, like, okay, this is interesting. Um, Nemo or Namor, I don't know, <laughs> is the biggest thing on the page. And I'm like, oh, beautiful, beautiful, Jack Kirby, nice, interesting. And I see a child, okay, and I see two women. And I, I was a bit confused. So I was wondering <laughs> who's who, who's who, until I flipped through the pages, of course. And then I see this character, Crystal. Um, I knew Crystal, but I did not know that I knew Crystal. So I just know the modern iteration of the character. So it was interesting to see her here. And yeah, so she's on the first page. It says um, the subtitle, I believe, the strength of the submariner. And she's giving Ben Grimm the thing, his meds, because he has a flu. And um, Johnny is in the back trying thing, to make him take his meds. The yeah. thing in this era, if you guys are familiar, I always picture him as Donald Duck. Donald Duck is this like tough <laughs> character, but he's always being put into these precarious situations. And he's like, rah, like ran to get the world. So here we have the thing on page one with a cold being forced fed. Like this is a guy that can knock down buildings, but he has to be fed his cough syrup by a girl. He's like, well, I hate this stuff. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure what he has in his hands. I thought it was a grenade for a brief second. Yeah, it looks like a hand grenade. <laughs> I, <think. laughs> I was confused. Is that a perfume bottle? I think it's perfume. Okay. So he's been force-fed um, his meds. And um, on the next page, and okay, now he, he has had that. And then he's about to sneeze and he goes, Abba, 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 Abba. And then Johnny whisks crystal away in my mind on that third panel i'm like it's this can't be that serious come on now this is over dramatic business just <laughs> and i see the next panel and everywhere is like scattered and there's like this mini explosion and then i'm like was that that was in the green age could these snails do that i never it's, knew it's donald duck i'm telling you <laughs> really it was amazing to see like whoa this is actually very dangerous you know and then um, Crystal says, bless you, Mr. Green. <laughs> yeah, everyone's frantic and scared. Then on the next page, Mr. Fantastic shows up. What's all the commotion in here? He says, and they try to explain. Um, or he says, um, are you guys trying to get the baby? I'm trying to get the baby to sleep, hoping that they don't wake the baby up. And I remember that I saw a baby on the cover. I'm like, oh, it's child. And that must be um, stopped. And for those of us that have babies, if there is a sound interrupting you putting the baby down, I am pissed. Exactly. <laughs> exhausting, man. Exactly. So, and then Johnny Storm says, speaking of babies, read 
did you ever try to get Bashu Benjamin to swallow his medicine? I'm like, why are they treating the thing like a child? <laughs> he is actually a child. He is a child in this issue. Uh, before we One change really scenes, like, before we change scenes, I would actually yeah. love to hear from Thorne quickly. Uh, your comments on Crystal and uh, Johnny's fashion here. Well, I mean, the thing is, um, when I was introduced to Crystal the first time, I think she was in some sort of leathery pantsy something. Just she, she was so badass. Uh, I'm trying to remember what era that how would have been. I suppose this would have been before. Um, I'm not sure I would have fallen in love with her as instantly and hard if this was how I was presented with her for the first time. Uh, but after this, she looks cool. She's got a she's got like a sleeveless little dress, uh, yellow, like a black sash. She's clearly also trying to dress the Human Torch. She's like got him in like some inhuman fashion. She like raided Black Bolt's uh, like sweater closet. <laughs> Yeah, that's her signature look. She's always got this like black headband. Oh. Uh, that's uh, that's how you know it's Crystal. <laughs> uh, Dotun, take us to Atlantis. Atlantis, okay, that should be the last two panels. Yeah. And then we get to Atlantis, which is very interesting to me because um, I really like to see how they depict an underwater world. And I love the color choices. I would never choose this, but they were very interesting to see. So we're in Atlantis, and then we meet our submariner. Um, he's in a ship of some sort. And I love how majestic he is. He says, remain at the post. I shall personally investigate the area. I think they felt something, a shockwave, yes, on the previous page. There's a there's a lot of Atlantis is drawn like very Roman in a lot of ways, but the the captain of this submarine has like a it, it almost seems like an African tribal oh, mask to me. It's a really interesting look for for uh, the Atlantean uh, military here. I think it's really interesting. Mm. So I, I, let I, me just see. I think this might be. I think about what um, inspired the movie. I, I don't think it's African. I think it's it's, it's a little Aztec flavor. Oh, sure, sure. That yeah. makes more sense. Yeah. 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 And yeah, and the Aztec and the African aesthetics can look similar, but I think it's more Aztec. Mm -hmm. Which very much matches inspired. Black Panther in the movie, right? Yeah, the, uh, yeah. the Atlantis yeah. is very Az Aztec there. That makes sense. Yeah, thank you. And it is sort of, it's a, the, the colors on this page are just amazing. Um, and I'm not sure why they make such a point of it being a gloomy day in like, like, because they, they do, uh, they say something like, if only the city wasn't such a gloomy place. And then we, we go underwater and it's so beautiful and Atlantis is so beautiful. But then they forget about all the bad weather later on in the issue. But I think they're trying to make a point here. I think they're trying some kind of contrast thing. Like the New York, I suppose, is gloomy and horrible. And then they go to Atlantis. Uh, now, mm, the Savage Land is one of the favorite places in the Marvel Universe. It is the tropical jungle uh, that has dinosaurs in it that's in the middle of Antarctica. And this is a submariner discovering the Savage Land for the first time. Uh, Dotun, I'm excited to hear your thoughts on how uh, Jack Kirby draws pterodactyls. Because these, these creatures have... <laughs> <laughs> I, I think he, he added his own style to it which I found interesting. 
Um, the red eyes, the red gum and inner mouth were very interesting to me. They caught my attention very quickly and I could feel a sense of, oh, this is very dangerous, you know? Um, I liked them and I liked that when they were in the background, they had a different type of color, you know? The color choices here are, I should say, I, 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 I mean insane. I would never think to use these colors, but I like them for some reason. I like them for some reason. They walk. They actually speak. They send that message that the creator wants you to hear and feel. Um, there's a panel which I really like, where Magneto was in the foreground. Um, he's having a he's having a nap in a volcano. He's sleeping beauty. Exactly. He's <laughs> sleeping beauty in Submariner is Prince Charming, who must slay the dragon to save <laughs> the fair maiden. That's yeah. <laughs> yes. That's in distress. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> I like the angle. I like the fact that he's facing us, and the Nemo is coming is in the mid ground, and then this creature is in the background. I like that. There's a, there's one. If you zoom in, there's one in the background. Background that is just lines. It's not colored, and I'm like, okay, <laughs> interesting choice there. So yeah, also interesting. Namor, Namor yells at the dinosaur, back at the command of Namor, his carcass is not <laughs> yeah. for you, because it's mine. He wants it all that. for himself. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to mention Like, what's going on there, you know? Then the explanation of what is happening, I mean, understandable at the time. This is the aftermath of some mighty explosion, and they are ahead of me, the sole survivor. Okay, that was weird. Uh, like, then the next page, Yes. The next page made me laugh. Okay, he handles these creatures and then I think he spins them or slams them into something and they explode. And I'm like, you didn't have to kill them. <laughs> you know? And they exploded into pieces in the second panel. I'm like, whoa, Imperius Rex. When, yeah, Imperius Rex is his famous battle cry. But when you read, he touches Magneto's face. And when you read this, like Prince Charming, he breathes. I must take him to Atlantis yeah. while the flame of life still flickers. It's very romantic. <laughs> very, very romantic. And then we're back to the Baxter building. Caption says, a short time later, a long, long distance away. Ben has his hand stuck out from the building. The rain had stopped at this time now. Okay, cool. And says, hey, how about that? It's, it ain't raining no more. And something lands in his hand. And uh, he says, but we're on the 35th floor. Yeah, he's very, he got the Donald so, Duck look again. Like, wow, what's happening out there? <laughs> I like that panel because it's something, um, I think they call it um, a page turner. I don't know where page five will be now. One. Okay, page five would be on the right-hand side, yes. I believe. Six, very yeah, good six, page six, There's something yeah, so like funny about seeing the thing in a bathrobe as well. It's uh, it's it's cute. Um, I think there's something that people say a lot now when it comes to like uh, modern comics, talking about how they are cinematic as, as though to contrast with um, previous comics as if those comics weren't cinematic. But the mm. thing about... I think if we should imagine all these scenes shown on um, a square TV, like TVs were back then instead of widescreen TVs, yeah. all these panels are extremely cinematic. They feel like things you could see in a 1960s movie. Yeah. The pacing, the pacing, like you said, Suna, like look at the framing, the way he framed, um, the way Jack Kirby framed the things and 
shows the body and then winner is going to show what's dropped there you can see it's 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 extremely cinematic and i think jacobi also had experience in, in storyboarding i think that's where he met uh, mobius so i think mm-hmm. you can see some of those storyboard influences here that cinematic pacing and cinematic framing even the way the way he holds the uh two um pterodactyls it's it's you can imagine some of those old Schwarzenegger movies, although that's another era. It's those kind of tight frames where you see him sh- struggling with the two creatures and stuff like that. So it's really, really good. And also, I think you see you see how um, Stanley and Jack Kirby, you see how they rip off each other. And sometimes you see when there's this there's disjoint too as well. I don't, I'm not sure. I don't think Jack Kirby meant for um, Neymar to think Magneto was already dead. I think Stanley just thought that was a cool thing to say, thinking it was a carcass. Like, if he thought it was dead, like, they were just trying to eat. Why would you kill creatures just because they were trying to feed on something that was already dead? There, uh, there is a lot of panels of superheroes and supervillains beating up animals in the 60s and 70s. That was very <laughs> common. Seeing them punch a tiger in the face or smash a dinosaur with a knife, you know, it's a it's a very common trope, especially if you're reading, uh, you know, the Khazar or Craven the Hunter, like those kinds of characters mm-hmm. are constantly slaughtering animals. Uh, Thorin, <laughs> what are you doing over there? Do you want to take us through the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. I will certainly, certainly try. Um, Okay, so our friend Ben, he's he's having he he's hand is out the window. He's trying to figure out if it's still raining. Something is happening. Something is is going on, and something lands in his hand, um, which is sort of a gift wrapped something, uh, which turns out is from. Uh, uh, it's like he doesn't know where it's from, but it's from the Human Torch. And this is, is a huge trope in the Fantastic Four of the the Human Torch playing pranks on the thing, and the thing being like, ah, you know, it's uh, and, and the thing's dialogue here cracks me up. Crystal goes, there, "There's nothing there. You must have been imagining it." He goes, "Does does this look like something I dreamed up at a ham fat lady?" Like his uh, his sixties dialogue. Cracks I, me I would up. say that most. I, I would. I think uh, that the thing is the closest thing Stanley has to Stanley. Like that, it feels like it was, we got one of the best lines ever coming up, and it's just—it sounds like something Stanley would have wanted to say, right? Absolutely. I'm fat. What the fuck is that? But it's great. Uh, but you—you you have like you have the Human Torch sort of skulking around the building, doing something. Like we, we get a feel that he's up to something. And then, and the first time I read this, I thought he was the one who broke the tip of the building apart. But no, that's something else. Something else is going on. Because the the very top of the building detaches and starts following him. Yeah, and this is something we'll see through the rest of the issue. Magneto is in Atlantis and activates some sort of machine that makes his magnet powers go crazy. So, like, metal shit is just zipping all over New York City, which that's a far way away from, like, uh, Antarctica. But, you know, something about his powers. Like, Mm -hmm. he's, he's messing with the magnetic poles and, like, pieces of buildings are ripping off and flying around. It's crazy. And the thing is, when I read shit like this, I wonder, like, why do I spend so much time trying trying to make things make sense? When I could have just been like, no, no, it's just his powers that sort of ooh, it broke the building apart. Like, it's it's great. Uh, and I'm not entirely sure you might know why the building would follow 
Johnny? Uh, I, I don't think there's a reason except that Johnny just is a very bad uh, strategist. <laughs> right. Because because the top of the building flying around follows Johnny. So he takes it into the water. So that's sort of the solution to the problem. Uh, I, I don't think we handle the fact that there are probably people in the building. Uh, that's mm. not something we deal with. Meanwhile, um, uh, our Fantastic Four, like Reed and Sue, they're mostly concerned with getting Franklin to sleep and eat. Uh, so uh, Sue is trying, like feeding Franklin, and and Reed is trying to make some sort of new sort of baby formula that will. And, and I mean, powers. I relate. I would also, to get the kid to sleep, certainly do something like that. So they're they're doing that while New York is sort of falling literally to pieces around them, <laughs> which is great. This uh, uh, this energy, uh, Moriwa and uh, and and Dotun. I don't know if you have children, but this energy of just somebody put this kid to fucking sleep. <laughs> I need a break. <laughs> just I just need I just figured like this is something completely else. But I just found out about out about night nurses, like like people who come in and stay during the night that Americans sort of just buy what the fuck it's a <laughs> it's a different kind of world over there um anyway so at some point they realized okay so the, the problem is bigger than uh like they need to do something and and interesting it is it's Ben it's the thing who who is sort of the voice of reason here um and and sort of goes oh it's a big deal we need to handle it and the thing sings, uh, it's rain and tin, hallelujah, it's rain and tin. He's <laughs> <laughs> just, he's just a delight. He's the most, like, I, I didn't yeah. know that the thing would be such a delight, but he is. The thing is a lot of people's all-time favorite Marvel character for a reason. He's, he's, he's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, but he's just, it, he's so well-written. And I think, like, in this issue, like, in general, I think Manginito is very well-written. Uh, and the thing. And then, like, the rest of them are sort of, they're there, certainly. They they appear on the page. Okay, so we go, meanwhile, half, half a world away. Um, uh, we are, at this point, in Namor's lab, right? Yeah, just in Atlantis. Yeah. Uh, Magneto found some science-y stuff, and he can't keep his finger. It, there's this button, basically it's a button that says, don't push, and Magneto's like, ding! <laughs> and then yeah. his powers go crazy. <laughs> that that's that seems about right. And and to the point where, like, he, he's done something, and then um, uh, Atlantis, uh, he is uh, summoned to Atlantis to sort of uh, answer for his not necessarily crimes but what what his what what he's doing at this point on page eight um, there's that image i i know a lot of artists will take like photos of their friends to try to get facial expressions and there's this image of magneto with like this face like <laughs> I'm just picturing someone taking yeah. a selfie of themselves so they can draw that face it is not pretty uh, it also cracks me up. They're like, uh, you will you will come see Namor and you will not speak unless spoken to. And Magneto says, spare me your advice. Magneto too was born to command. Yeah. yeah. I love that oh, line. It's so good. It line. is the best line. Uh, I, 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 I love that saying, line. Oh, it's almost the best line. line of my pages, but we're getting to another even better <laughs> one uh, that I'm not going to butcher. Uh, and, and this is interesting because then... Um, Magneto is summoned, um, and he sort of like. Can, can you read the lines here, Chad? Yeah, Magneto. So it's me. a beautiful full-page uh, shot. Namor's on the throne with 
fur. Yeah. Uh, it's a red throne. He's got like uh, the soldiers framing him with like these dragon serpentine helmets. It's a beautiful page. Magneto says, uh, he, Magneto basically saying, Namor, you and I are the same. Like you're, we're both sexy. We're both virile. Everybody loves us. Look at how wonderful I am. And also how hot I am just like you. Uh, it cracks me up. So he says, neither you nor I are truly human, Namor. Neither of us will ever be trusted by the world above. Therefore, why do we not join forces? Think of it, Submariner. Your power combined with mine. Who could hope to stand against us? And uh, Namor is all thighs in this image. He is he has got yeah, it. Go he's on. there for the thighs. It's just it's nothing else, basically. <laughs> but I will say it is a sort of I, I don't think I can't remember any other time where Magneto has been the one to be like, hey, maybe we should work together. Maybe he is only know. like this with Namor. Uh, everyone else, he's like, I am your better. But Namor, he's like, hey, you're a king, and so am I. Let's be friends. <laughs> But but it's great. And then can can you read lines here too? Yeah, Namor says, uh, "You hint at war, while I have ever striven for peace," which is fucking ridiculous. This man attacks New York City and like every other issue. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) and he says, uh, "And yet there is much truth in the words you speak." And uh, again, Magneto's so horny. He says, "Then think upon it, Namor. Think long and deep." It's so horny. You're absolutely (laughs) right. Jesus. Everyone should read this with like Chad I felt I felt the same way when I got to that line. Like, what is going on? (laughs) Why do you need it so much? And what is long and deep? Long and deep. (laughs) Come on now. Okay, so so back with the Fantastic Four, they've sort of read us, redirected his efforts from baby formula to figuring out what the hell is going on. And I do appreciate just how fast it's just like, no, it's it's a we're we're making a magna tracer to figure out where the magnetic whatever the fucks are are coming from. Um and he and he immediately figures that figures it out. Um that it's the submariners. And then we get my favorite line, which I shouldn't read, uh, but it's the thing going, I'll moider the bomb. And it's <laughs> yeah. You mean the submariners behind this? I'll moider the bomb. <laughs> and it's just and it's just such a perfect thing. Like like everything else is is written perfectly, but the thing's dialogue. That's that's where it's gonna it's gonna add some accents, it's gonna add some it, I love yeah. it, it's beautiful. Uh Marie, well, will you take us through uh the next section of the book? Tell us what happens. Okay. I hope you guys can see because I removed my airpods a little to charge them. Yeah, we can hear you okay. Perfect. Okay, yeah, I wanted to uh, say something about the previous pages. I think, um, I think it's the top, the top of a building. I don't think people live inside. It's a decorative top of a skyscraper. I think that's what came off, and they're usually made of metal and concrete. I think that's what Magneto was controlling. Are you trying to, that to make it less horrible? Because I will always <laughs> make it more horrible if I can. But that's good. It's good. <laughs> okay, so um, um, so the next pages, um, when page eleven now, um, Reed, Johnny, and um, Crystal and um, Ben, they're just chilling in the lab, just relaxing, and then suddenly, um, cables come from Reed's machines and start attacking Ben. Um, Reed tries to rescue Ben, but he's also caught up in in the cables the cables is electrocuting them and then um johnny tries to rescue them by 
with flames, flame on, but the, I don't know how that's possible, but the cables are basically weaving, weaving the fire. If it's Magneto controlling them, like how would Magneto know where the fires are? Is in Atlantis, like, I don't even know. So Crystal is the one that saves them by destroying the, the, the machines that the cable was connected to. And do you know my uh, theory here is the invisible girl is in the room. Nobody can see her, and she's just fucking <laughs> all of them. <laughs> oh, that exactly. makes sense. That, this is that great. makes sense. That makes sense. Like for the building, for the cable, for the cables, everything makes sense if it's just the invisible. But like you left me with Franklin, you left him to take care of CCG the CCG let him sleep. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, you woke up my baby. Fuck all of you. <laughs> so. So the 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 they're recovering, trying to go back to chilling, and then Ben is like, he's not going to have it, so he pushes the button. So um, Reed's, Reed. Reed's basic plan here is he's I'm going to send a sonic probe to see what uh, Atlantis is doing, but if that doesn't work, I have a button here that will send a concussion missile, which will go off and warn them not to attack us. You know, just pick up the phone, man. Like call Namor and say, "Hey, what's up?" Instead, he has a missile missile ready. <laughs> the weirdest line in this comic book uh, uh, is uh, uh, "Thing goes." I don't know what this means. If you ask me, a poke in the shoot would do it better. I don't know what I don't know what the hell that means. <laughs> poke but in finally, the, the the thing grows impatient and he pushes the button to send the missile to Atlantis. Which what else is Namor gonna do but fight back? It's so stupid. Anyway, keep yeah. going, Barry. <laughs> <laughs> so and then we start seeing uh, everything in Atlantis starts toppling down and Neymar is being a badass you know with his muscles flexing it he lifts a old mountain of concrete throws it away to save to save his people I think that's that's the end yeah yeah and uh yeah, Namor says uh that he's he's protecting people he says the wrath of Namor has been aroused uh they've been aroused the whole time <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I'll guide us through the end of the book. Uh, th th uh, there's a theme of, uh, this is explored in Black Panther, the movie, when it comes to Namor as well. There's these two civilizations that one pushes the button and the other has to push the button back, right? Like, you attack me, now I must attack you, and things keep escalating. But Magneto's basically trying to drive them to war so that he can get Namor on his side. That's kind of the, the basic premise of this. Uh, but basically, yeah, as we get into the latter part of the book, Magneto Magneto's like, the Fantastic Four hit this missile, so now we should team up. And Namor's like, I need no one! Uh, he's very adamant about this. Uh, but then the Fantastic Four send uh, an another missile, seemingly. Uh, Magneto's trying to blame them for everything, and Namor has to... Okay, okay, hang on. I gotta get my, my facts straight here. It seems like Magneto has sent another missile and is trying to blame the Fantastic Four. Uh, because there's a concussion missile pulling in to try to explore what's happening. Uh, Magneto is is goading events and trying to make them worse uh, to drive the Atlantean army to war with the surface world. And Namor is ready to protect, of course. Uh, so there's there's a, a place where Magneto, who is in his pure supervillain era, in his private thoughts, he says, so long as men feel the end can justify the means, so long as they seek to justify battle and carnage and endless killing, so long will Magneto still have a chance to destroy the human race. And then he says out loud, whether on the surface or beneath the sea, and their fears drive them to war, even as they long for peace, the fools, the blind, unwitting fools. 
Uh, Namor agrees to let uh, Magneto come along with him, but he's like, I am definitely in charge and you will do whatever I say, which is, uh, again, Magneto's into this. It's fine. Uh, and then Mr. Fantastic's like, Thing, why did you launch that missile? Because now the Atlanteans are attacking and we have to go to war. Oh, no. Uh, that's kind of where the issue uh, ends. What are your thoughts on this issue as we kind of wrap up this very silly but also very fun story of uh, two civilizations going to war because Magneto wants power and to protect the mutants? It's, uh, it's a fun story. What are your kind of concluding thoughts here? Um, does anyone want to go first? Uh, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Um, um, I, I, there are lots of thoughts. Uh, you know, sometimes you go back to read, like, uh, maybe, like, X-Men comics, Iron Man comics, any of those comics, especially very, very early on. And then you discover that a lot of things you thought were new additions had always been there from the start. So I had this feeling a lot going through it. Like, I didn't know the... Fantastic Four, um, Reed and Sue already had a kid by this time in the Fantastic Four. I thought that came later on. I think this was that recent, very early. So that was that was very surprising. And then, just like we're talking, the dialogue in this, even though it might seem like it's um, it's of the past, but it's very, very good. The reason why I could know it, the dialogue is very, very good is because it reminded me of there's a cartoon show, The Jetsons, yeah. set around mm. that time. So the dialogue is just as good as The Jetsons. And The Jetsons' dialogue was legendary. Like, it could rival the Flintstones. Yeah, this was... So I was like, I can imagine why the Fantastic Four was such a big deal back then. Like, imagine dialogue this good. Imagine characterization this good. And Jack Kirby's artwork was phenomenal. His sci-fi representation, I'm like... Nothing could beat this, even in Hollywood. I could see why it was he called out Hollywood talking about um, he doesn't have budgets because he has the pen, he can make everything real. I'm like, okay, I can see why somebody for someone that was so humble to make that kind of statement, he could bring it. Everything sci-fi here is is more is more real, is more and even things you would see in movies back then. So it was very, very good. Um, cliffhanger ending, very strong cliffhanger ending. Um, and then there's this dynamic between villains. The dynamic between villains is really very, very interesting, like, because they can have secrets, they can... And, things, and the dynamic between uh, Namor and um, Magneto, it's, it's very strange because they're both like this kind of alpha male characters that would not bow to another. And for some reason, Magneto is like, yeah, yeah, you're the boss, you're the boss, yes. Even though, yeah, and he's trying to, like, manipulate him. And even though Nemo would be on his side, he's already on his side, still tries to backstab Nemo. And it's just very, very strange and convoluted. And I, I just like it. I, I love the drama. I love the... Um, and there's this perfect balance between plot and character by Stan. The there plot is, is uh, moving, but they said this character moments. Yeah. There there are a couple issues in the Defenders where Namor and the Black Panther wind up at war, both be because they both have huge egos. And uh, they don't want to admit they're wrong, so they wind up at war. That story gets picked up later by Priest in his Black Panther run in the early 2000s, where it's yes, very yes, much Magneto, Magneto is running Genosha and all these nations of these men with huge egos. Jonathan Hickman then later picks that up. If you read his New Avengers run, where he's talking about the Illuminati 
and the consequences of these men with enormous egos who can't ever seem to understand yeah. each other. Uh, that's that's kind of the through line for these characters, the rulers of nations, because it's Namor, Magneto, and Mr. Fantastic. Uh, and their their actions keep getting exacerbated because the thing grows impatient or the human torch grows impatient or Magneto pushes a button behind the scenes. And rather than pick up the phone, let's send a sonic probe or a concussion missile to see what happens. And they're so <laughs> ready to go to war. It's uh, it's very much the sword fight between uh, the, the the rulers of nations, which I wish was fictional, but this is something we see in real life and in politics with world leaders all the time, right? It's yeah. uh, my military is bigger than yours. Uh, and I mean, look yeah. at what's happening with Putin right now. It's 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 ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dotun, do you have any final thoughts? Yeah, I, I like that. It is um, very calm, flamboyant and exaggerated. Um, I like um, Magneto's playing a strategist rather than just using brute force. He's using another person's brute force, you know, mm-hmm. and that was very interesting. Because from the beginning, I was like, why would Magneto need this guy? Why would, Mag- like, like Torrent said, why would he? I've never seen Magneto needing, you know, someone this much. And like you said, maybe, you know, maybe they had a thing, who knows? <laughs> and, <laughs> and, um, Nemo's ego is quite sexy here, you know, from the very first introduction to the character and how commanding he is and everything. This is someone without a uniform that is commanding so much respect. I love that. We all love uniformed men. And this guy is almost naked and, you know, he's he's equally as sexy and commanding. I like that. Then the things, the things dialogue is hilarious. The accent, mm-hmm. the way he chimes in, the things he says, is actually a child in this episode. I don't know about that episode, but his dialogue, his accent, everything is fantastic. Now, for the art, I love the panel layout. I like the six-grid structure, which is a lot of work, and uh, I like the consistency. Um, some pages were like five panels, some, I think, four. There was, there was you know, a little bit of change here and there, but it was mostly a six-grid panel. Um, structure which was interesting then bold colors and good characterization and i love like when i said the cliffhanger ending when i got to the end i was like oh is that the end okay i think i have to go and read more now uh, that was that was a good ending i'm like okay okay I'm read, it, of- read along and follow along we got two more episodes coming out after this that'll finish this story for you <laughs> i will i definitely will uh thorin any final thoughts here well the thing is i think one of the things that i learned through reading this issue again um is that because sometimes when you pick up the old marvel comics there are some very awkward dialogue that's just sort of in there but in this issue you sort of see that all the other characters are just there as sort of supporting characters there to explain what's going on and ask the correct questions at the correct time uh and the writing is not brilliant but the thing is the other characters, in this case, Magneto, the thing, not in anymore. Like they're they're so good. Um, and for some reason, I still I want to keep reading, which is sort of the magic of this, right? Uh, and and I I think I've sort of after reading this, I think I'm going to have to go back and read more Fantastic Four, uh, which is exactly what I said last time I wasn't on this show, um, because there is something here that I think I've 
um, sort of dismissed at some point because I think Magneto's dialogue it's just so good like it's it's okay. absolutely brilliant and same thing with the thing like it's more character in those few lines and the the very little actual um, like because they don't do a lot they're just there hanging out in the um, in the office being or in the in the house technically uh, being a little impossible. Uh, but, but it's still like the, the few things they do uh, it, it speaks to the character of like the thing in a way that I've never seen before so yeah I will keep reading uh, which is fascinating it, because these comics have been available for a long time now and I've, I've never gotten to it before so I will oh, yeah. I will keep reading and I will keep listening to your because the thing is it, it when you read the lines chat it does bring something to it. I feel like you, like if you ever did like a, a read along comic show, I would actually uh, look at it. I would. I, uh, I do character voices on my show. We have read a couple scripts out loud, but I do. I do have a good face for radio, as they say. <laughs> I like. To, I don't think that's true. But I, I, like to give a... I, I, I had someone. I did a Warhammer comic a while ago, and they did a live reading on it on some YouTube show, and they did the voices and everything, and it was like with all due respect to everyone involved, it was mortifying. But I, I think I would, if you did it, I, I would be there. It was. I, uh, I, I've, I've, I'm most associated with my Sauron voice, the pterodactyl man. Like, about <laughs> to give, give character voices. Uh, this has been delightful. I love visiting these old issues. I will forever associate this issue with this conversation. But I also love making new friends. Uh, hanging out with the three of you today, hearing your stories, and just vibing with you today has been absolutely wonderful. Thank you so much for delving into this ridiculous old issue. One thing I neglected to say earlier, and I'll toss this out as a quick aside. Uh, Thorne, uh, Diogenes Neves on Realm of X is just doing beautiful work. And I just wanted to toss that uh, out uh, it, it's insane it's it's so, one of those so uh you know you you only see the the comic book scripts that are just like four lines and then the artist goes to town and deliver it's very much one of those situations where i just go oh make to make vanheim the most beautiful place you've ever been and he's like yeah okay i, I got the <laughs> i got the note i will work like it's it is so spectacular good. spectacular work um and, uh, okay. and brilliant for me we're going to put this out on November 6th on the main show. Uh, if you guys have anything you would like to plug, this is a great place to do it. I'd also love for you to share uh, anything uh, that you want to, if you can't announce something yet, just let me know, hey, there's something coming that you should watch for, but I can't say it yet. Because that always makes me excited to hear people I'm a fan of knowing that they have things coming up. Uh, also, where can people find each of you online uh, if you'd like them to be able to follow your work? Uh, Dotun, would you like to go first here? Yes, well, there is something coming from Marwan myself, and uh, but we can't say yet. Yay! Okay, we can't. No, we can't. We can't. We can't. It's coming out. Yeah, this is okay. this podcast coming out November. Um, October twelve is the announcement. New York Comic Con. Okay, so um, Dr. and I are working with um Oni Press. They reached out to us after I am Iron Man. Um to work on an African dark fantasy series called Akogun, the Brutalizer of Gods. So um, it's, going to, it's going to follow a character that has been hurt and damaged by the world and uh, the gods they're supposed to worship. And this is his vengeance story. So it's, it's, it's very Conan the Barbarian, 
meets um god of war kind god of, of war <laughs> yeah so it's going to be it's going to be incredibly violent it's going to be incredibly sexy and um yeah that's is going to be coloring it so it wants to go all out in the line art so we're going to be seeing more sick lines from than ever before from Dotsun. so it's it's it's, it's very very good like the cover is working on now you can see like marks and stuff i see he's trying to be jeff darrow or from quite or something it's very very good i'm so excited to look into this and i'm thrilled you guys have more work coming out you're a dream team uh in comics and i i really uh have enjoyed getting to know you both today thank you for coming on the show and sharing your stories i uh, i'm a big fan uh dotun i'm also very excited for nightcrawler so keep me posted <laughs> <laughs> no problem uh thorin do you want to go next Sure. Uh, you can find me everywhere uh, uh, online, I suppose. I'm I'm on Twitter or whatever it's called now. Uh, I'm on Instagram and I'm all the things. I'm just just there. Uh, I, I just ghost it most of the time. But if you want to say something, just send me a message. Um, and as this is coming out in in November, I think my main thing is I have Carnage coming out like a week from now. Uh, and this is Carnage number one. And it sounds listen, really scary, Thor. Oh my! <laughs> the thing is, like, we we just had the the, the there was a a great headline about like it's scarier than than they previously thought. Like it is, uh, well, it's scarier, but it's just bloodier, I suppose. They had to up the age rating. Uh, and I don't know. It's it's <laughs> Cletus Cassidy. Who would have given that to uh, <laughs> your seven year old anyway? Like, don't don't do that. Uh, but it is, um, it's Carnage, it's Cletus Cassidy, isn't kind of a 90s Cletus Cassidy. Um, I went back and I read all the 90s comics, like the, the Carnage comics, and uh, that's where we're going. And when I say, like, because people, a lot of people know me from, like, Jane Foster and the Valkyries and everything. So Carnage seems a little odd. But but when I say like this feels like the most me comic I've ever written, like well if, you're also a little odd, so it's fine. <laughs> possibly, but that might be something. But it, it, I don't know why Cletus Cassidy comes so easily to me, but he does. Um, so I'm so excited about this comic book, and I do hope that everyone will will give it a chance, even though it is, look, you know, there will be some blood and gore, uh, but there will also be a lot of mythology and scripture, and this is sort of. Cletus Cassidy trying to figure out if he's a god or not. It's good. Fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait. Uh, and anything you can hint for uh, Realm of X? Wow, wow, wow. Um, well, I mean, it's got to be worse before it gets better. Is that something? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, so the like three will be out at this point, I suppose. So we just we have one issue to go when this um, we said this episode drops. Just, just um, don't kill me until you've read the entire thing. Please. That's what we're going. <laughs> yeah, to I do. always encourage my listeners to give something a full shot before you form opinions because you never know where the story is going. Uh, what a delight! Thank you all for coming on. Um, lastly, I'm Chad Anderson. I keep my own social media private because I've got kiddos. The three of you are welcome to add me, reach out if you'd like. Uh, but uh, you can find Gray Malkin PP like podcast on Twitter, Gray Malkin underscore lane on Instagram. It's such an honor to me to be doing these old issues and the level of talent coming on to review with me is incredible. So thank 
thank you for the three of you for doing this old issue. The next issue, Fantastic Four number 103, is what we'll cover in the very next show. Uh, we have a combination of Jeremy Whitley and uh, Alex Segura coming on to review that issue, which is going to be incredible. The issue right after that, Fantastic Four 104, has uh, the incredible combination of Jay Holtham, Sean Damian Hill, and Stephanie Williams coming on. So this uh, this three-issue uh, run of Fantastic Four has never been so beautifully reviewed ever <laughs> in history. Uh, but what an honor to have you all coming on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, we will see you all back here next time on Gray Malkin Lake. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today. Hey everybody, thanks for sticking around. We are now going to surprise you with the uh, vocal and acting talents of some very nerdy friends of mine. Uh, we're going to call this the Smut Crew. This is the, the gang from the Candy Southern episode, uh, plus my dear friend Steve Duda. We're going to be uh, reviewing or reading through the first issue of Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number 1 from June 1996. Uh, I, Chad Anderson, will be playing the narrator. I, Justin Wilder, will be Nathaniel Essex. I, Alicia Wilder, will be Rebecca Essex. I, Steve Duda, will be Charles Darwin and Cyclops. I'm Demand Martini, and I am playing the absolutely iconic <laughs> role of Cootie Tremble. <laughs> I'm Arturo, and I'm going to be Apocalypse. I'm Sarah Century, and I'm going to be Jean Grey slash the whore, the role I was born to play. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Jean Grey and the whore are different people, uh, depending on your slash, opinion. Yeah, but then slash is a very important word to use here, right? Like, <laughs> So we're going to read through this script uh, just doing literally like a live theatrical reading. And uh, we're going to talk about it at the end. Uh, we're working some early or some content in from uh, uh, a time travel adventure. This is uh, The Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which is the sequel to the series, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix where Scott and Jean go into the far future to raise baby Nathan. And then in this episode, or in this series, they get sent back into the past to witness the birth of Mr. Sinister. So we're just going to kind of let you vibe, and we'll talk about it a little bit at the end. Uh, but without further ado, here we go. This is Further Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, number one, from June 1996. The writer is Peter Milligan. John Paulion is the penciler. The inker is Klaus Janssen. Kevin Summers uh, also... Uh, as well as Richard Starkings and uh, on colors and Mark Powers as the editor. Issue one is called Digging Up the Past. On the cover, we see Mr. Sinister as a glowing figure in the front of a visage of an evil apocalypse. The title states, Birth of a Dark Covenant, the origin of Mr. Sinister begins here. Big Ben looms in the background. On the back cover, Cyclops and Phoenix are landing in the past. The caption states, Witness the awakening of an ages-old evil, the birth of a twisted genius, the darkest hour in the millennia-spanning history of the X-Men. The year is 1859, and the modern world is consumed in an age of enlightenment. But as humanity marches toward an era of undreamed-of science and technology, the dawn of a new race draws near, a divergent species that will possess uh, that will possess powers and abilities that will lead mankind into a new epic or doom it for all time. Page one, in a dark cemetery at night during a rainstorm. 
1859. At an isolated estate on the outskirts of London, where knowledge is pursued at any cost, a dark destiny that will culminate 2,000 years hence begins with the plaintive cry of a mother. When her son died suddenly, aged four, they buried him here with his ancestors. But as they lowered his tiny coffin, she'd felt as though the future itself were being entombed in the rich Kentish soil of Milbury House. But now, two years later, as her space uncovers that same coffin, she feels nothing as her spade uncovers that same coffin. She feels nothing but sheer godforsaken dread. We see the headstones of three figures, Mary Essex, Admiral Erasmus Essex, and Adam Stanislaus Essex. A woman digs at Adam's grave with a shovel frantically. Page two. She wants to stop, wants this night to be over, her life to be normal, her husband to be her husband. How pale he was on the day of the funeral, as white as a bridal gown. But no tears, just those empty eyes that spoke of such torment. The pain hits her hard, as though their baby were tearing at her very insides. She should stop, she thinks. This is madness. But she must go on. If she's ever to sleep again, if she's ever to be sane again, she must know what demon has possessed her husband. And we see that this woman is very pregnant. Lightning flashes behind her, revealing the very scary apocalypse standing there in the storm. Pages three and four. The captions take us one month earlier on an idyllic garden scene. Rebecca Rebecca Essex is dressed lavishly in purple and yellow with a flowery hood as she examines butterflies and she finds a bone in the garden. Nathaniel sits in a heavy coat reading The Origin of the Species by Charles Darwin. Oh, look, some kind of bone. Nathaniel, do look. It must be terribly old. Mm. Nathaniel, must you work every single hour God gives you? Nathaniel! He is Nathaniel Essex, regarded by some to be the greatest scientific mind of his generation, and by others as a dangerous man twisted by obsession. How she sometimes wishes he could just be a man. How she wishes he would let her into his world occasionally. Nathaniel takes a bone from her hand, cutting his finger. You shouldn't be exerting yourself, Rebecca. You should be resting. I am with child, sir, not an invalid. This book, The Origin of the Species, why do you read such a thing? Because, dear Rebecca, Darwin is a brilliant researcher. That thing, you call it, represents a great scientific achievement, though it should be greater. Darwin is still shackled by too many moral constraints. But... They are necessary if we are to maintain a civilized way of life. Science is beyond morality. And I don't need a a woman to tell me otherwise. You, you're bleeding, Nathaniel. So I am, but I must go. I must give a lecture to these fools at the Royal Society if I'm to prevent my expulsion. But, Nathaniel... What now, Rebecca? You didn't tell me about the bone. Merely a fossil of an animate, ominate, a kind of sea mollusk that died several million years ago. Forgive me, husband, but surely that is impossible. Father told me that Usher worked out from the Bible itself that the world started only 4,000 years before Christ. The Bible is wrong. There is no God. Though, if my theories are correct, some humans might, in time, evolve into gods. Pages five through seven, we move to a busy hall, the meeting hall of the Royal Society. There are rows of chairs, scientific theories on posters all around the room. Essex has the floor. With respect, 
Mr. Darwin is only partly correct. Evolution does indeed progress through slow incremental changes, but it also has the capacity to undergo rapid and startling transformations within the space of one or two generations. Moreover, I suggest we humans contain parcels of hereditary information. These parcels, which I humbly suggest we call Essex factors, carry the tribulations of the past and the potentialities of the future. When combined in the offspring of certain racially superior individuals, these parcels will, within a hundred years or so, mutate. Gentlemen, we are on the verge of an evolutionary breakthrough. Essex cuts a rope and shows the crowd a monstrosity that he's created, reminiscent of the Frankenstein's monster. It's a corpse with wings grafted onto its back, covered in blood and stitches. Good heavens! What in the name of God? This is just but a crude prototype I have assembled to illustrate some possible biological extrapolations. I have worked on the human parts and fused these with anatomical regions of animals and other inorganic materials. Imagine the improvements on our present form that are possible. I began with the lungs. Outrageous! An abomination! Throw the man out! But surely science must be above such petty, conventional modes of decency. This is the future. And the thrown object strikes him in the head. Cowards! If our forefathers had been as timid as you, we'd still be sitting in trees, eating berries, and scratching each other's buttocks. Darwin, surely you must see the significance of my work. Mr. Essex, Nathaniel, forgive me, but I believe you should consult a physician. I, too, have lost a beloved son and know how it can affect the mind, but you cannot bring your son back. You cannot change the past by attempting to manipulate the future. Your work is in many ways breathtaking, but you go too far. No, I must go further. I would, if only, if I could only free myself from this blasted so-called conscience that still pollutes me. But if you did, you would be a monster, sir. A monster like your creation. If that is what is required for science to progress, then let me be a monster. Page eight. Essex goes to a busy British pub filled with men drinking and women of ill repute. It only takes three pints of porter before he forgets the stench that permeates the pub. But though drunk, he still surveys the wretched crowd with a scientist's clarity. And he imagines a future where mankind will not be prey to cruel vagaries of evolutionary fate. A time when the species will diverge, the ones with the correct Essex factor, leaving this rabble in the evolutionary gutter. Fancy a good time, guy? All right, I'll wipe that frown off your china. Get away from me, you noisome harlot. I'm a married man. Excuse me, sir. The names tremble. Couldn't he tremble? Reckon I've got something more suitable for a gentleman like yourself. A kind of circus. A special kind where you'll see creatures beyond your imagination. I doubt that, but you intrigue me. Where is this place? Where all the bestest things are found, sir. Underground. 
Pages 9 through 11, we move to the sewers under London where misshapen men are kept in cages and gawked at. My God, what are they? Freaks and fools and all types of misshapen folks, sir. I collect them, and I'm doing a civic duty. This is the capital of the empire on which the sun never, you know, set, sir. Can't have these ugly bleeders making the place look untidy. This child looks quite normal. That's Danny. He's all funny in the head, sir. Funny? He saw his parents killed by cutthroats. Ain't spoke a single word since. That's funny, ain't it? (laughs) (laughs) A misshapen hand reaches for Essex through bars, but then another creature grabs him with excessive strength. The monstrous hand that reaches out for him is oddly gentle. Could it be, he wonders, these poor souls are not merely freaks, but nature's failed experiments? The cast-off of humans' evolution, excuse me, the cast-off, the cast-offs of evolution's march toward the great mutation? It must be the alcohol he muses, for he allows himself to dwell on Adam, his son, his fine, brave Adam. Why was he, his own son, born as he was? His ailments, crooked bones, and a woeful lack of blood, were they too part of nature's drive toward the future, or simply cruel and pointless? Ah, get it off! Get it off me! By God, that thing almost ripped my arm off! That's Martha, sir! Maybe she just wanted your hand in marriage! <laughs> I've seen enough here. Show me the way out. Tremble pulls a blade as his men do the same, and then he slices Essex's cheek. But we've only got acquainted. These me mates, we call ourselves the Marauders. Hold him. How dare you? Don't blame us, sir. That's our horrible upbringing makes us do it. There's hardly a drop of blood in you, sir. You should get out more often. (laughs) They empty Essex's pockets. You want this? You want money? Take it. Take it all. But if you're as clever as you like to think you are, take this opportunity to improve yourself. Join my cause. Cause? What sort of cause? Why, the most sacred of causes. The cause of science. Pages 12 and 13. Two weeks later, the Essex family cemetery is silent, save for the rustling of her skirts, the singing of sparrows, and the sound of her sorrow. Oh, Adam, he seems more gaunt and more distant by the day. I must tell you, I fear for our future. When your new brother or sister is born, why, what is that commotion? Rebecca hears a loud noise. Cautiously, she makes her way to the older part of the cemetery, where time has worn the names from the crumbling stones. She sees the unkempt men unloading the items from a wagon into her husband's secret annex, and she thinks, What are those horrible people? What are they doing outside Nathaniel's annex? But those crates, an almost human cry. Nathaniel walks up behind her. What? Nathaniel, you startled me. What are you doing clambering through the bushes? You must take better care of yourself and our baby. I saw those people. They're delivering equipment for a new series of experiments. Ah, you've been picking flowers. 
much more suitable for a gentlewoman. They're for Adam. I like to talk to him. Talk to him? At his graveside. Is that so strange? I have so few people to talk to. The maids are too busy, and you... Of course, darling, I understand. It must be very tiresome for you. Now, I really must get back to work. Tell the kitchen I shall not be requiring supper. Pages 14 through 18. Meanwhile, work continues on the sewers of London. Come on, Frankie boy, put your back into it. Arturo, I think you're Frankie. Oh, look here, Pat, bleeding crack in the ground. Two, di uh, two diggers fall through the ground and into a chamber below. They find alien technology as a chamber opens and apocalypse with is within. Unbeknownst to those who live in the world above, below the streets of London is a cavernous chamber which has existed for hundreds of years. Now alien technology vibrates softly, shaking off centuries of dusty sleep, like a beast waking from its long slumber, waking to fulfill an awful destiny. What? What is it, Pat? It is the place of your final reckoning. What? What? Who are you? I am one whom nature has placed above all others who has been tested by the strength of men and the ravages of time and has proven fit to survive. He incinerates the men in a blast of power. Had they been strong, they would have attacked me in that first moment of consciousness when, disoriented by long years of hibernation, I am at my most vulnerable. But they were weak and so were obliterated, as all must perish who stand in my way. For Apocalypse is risen. Apocalypse ascends to the surface world, seeing the modern technology. He has seen mighty pyramids rise from the desert, seen empires crumble to dust, the madness of kings and the butchery of generals, but never anything like this. The radiance that hangs over the city like a smoky nimbus, it is a sign, a luminous portent that the glorious hour of his ultimate supremacy over mankind is at hand. For as sure as the gaseous explosions of light chase the shadows from the winding streets of this strange citadel called London, so in this time, in this place, will he at last throw light onto his own true nature and his own true destiny. As the false daylight washes over him, he remembers other lights, other times. The story flashes back to the years Apocalypse spent as a slave under the whip. Uh, pause. Sarah, will you read, Seth, please? In well, this let me read. Not yet. Oh, do the. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was just <laughs> Ancient Egypt. A young slave called Ensabanur helps heave an alabaster statue of the dark god Seth. All his life, he has harbored dreams that belie his miserable position, a belief in his own innate superiority. No beating has ever broken this slave, nor injustice shaken his fierce will to survive. The slave driver's whip is hot and hungry, yet even as the pain rages across his back, a strange blow bursts from his tortured features. An unspeakable power explodes from within until Seth himself seems to address him. In a vision, Insabinur sees the Egyptian god Seth. Insabinur, it is time to seize your birthright. You are not born to be a slave to other men, but a conqueror. Though unsure of the source of his power, Ensabanur feels it roaring from his very soul. 
slave and slave driver alike fall to their knees at the first manifestation of the being who in the fullness of time will rule the world under the name of Apocalypse. Back in the present, the marauders find Apocalypse. <laughs> oh my, oh my! What an ugly brute! Oi! Cooty copper load of this freak of nature! Essex will pay a pretty penny for this one! Apocalypse lifts a hand and one of the marauders is instantly transformed. So you consider yourselves to be predators, willing to trample over the bodies of others in order to survive. There is strength in that, but know this. And Apocalypse pulls the head off of one of the marauders with a crack. Oh my god. That ain't, that ain't possible. I am not as other men. I am far more than that. Killed Billy with his bare hands! Henceforth, if you are to live, if you are to weather the coming storm, you must serve me. Hootie Tremble cocks his gun. Bloody brute! That was me, mate! Let's see how you like a bit of British let up, you! Apocalypse bends the barrel of the gun with two fingers. No weapon devised by man, be it of the past ten centuries or the next, can harm me. I, of all people, know the benefit of owning slaves. Slaves? Never! We're British! Britain never, <laughs> never shall be! Silence! This Essex you speak of, why would he be interested in me? Tell him, Cody. He ain't human. He ain't even French. No, no, no fear. Cody Tremble takes orders from no one. Apocalypse kills another marauder with a blast of power. Perhaps another lesson in obedience is required. Cody Tremble. At your service, uh, master, sir. Page 19. Meanwhile, the Gothic vaults of Westminster Abbey echo with the gentle refrain of evensong as rich and poor alike bow before their god. But tonight the air is even more highly charged than usual, with an ineffable sense of the miraculous. Good gracious, the candles! What does it what mean? What does it mean? Oh, sorry. I thought that was me. <laughs> no, it is. It is. Uh, Sarah's brown. I'm sorry. I got it. Sorry, sorry. Uh, Steve, will you take your line again? Good gracious. The candles. What does it mean? Calm yourselves. Surely tis only the wind. Be calm yourself, sir. For what wind is there inside a church? A naked, red-headed woman appears and falls. The shocked men soon grab her a covering. No ordinary wind, no ordinary power. The niche shines with an unearthly brilliance, and the radiant lady seems to hover for an age before falling to earth. A miracle! An angel. Jean Grey is only dimly aware of the worshippers who stare at her in devotion. What the X-Man codenamed Phoenix does register are her time-lost surroundings and the fact that she is quite alone. Cover yourself, child! Huh? Where? Scott! Uh, page 20. From the high church of kings and queens to the lower sewer of rats and squalor, the brilliance of the light is undiminished as another figure seems to hover and fall. But for Scott Summers, also called Cyclops, this is no miracle but a nightmare. 
Torn from his own time without warning, a stench fills his nostril, his head reels with pain and confusion, and we see Scott naked in sewer water without his visor. My eyes! They're not protected by my ruby quartz visor! There's nothing to control my optic blasts! For all intents and purposes, I'm blind! But the human body was not meant for such ordeals. He falls unconscious into the foul lake of filth and does not see the twisted and desolate creatures emerging from the shadows. Pages 21 through 24. Milbury House. It is not the howling wind, the pounding rain, or even the kicking of her unborn child that stops Rebecca Essex from sleeping. Nathaniel, I have never willingly disobeyed you. I take my vow seriously. I have loved and obeyed. But I am only human. I have our child to think of. It it cannot be healthy for the unborn babe to have its mother assailed by such hellish imaginings, for I cannot help but dwell, dwell upon the exact nature of your experiments. I hear them scream, Nathaniel, their soft, pitiful screams. Or is it I, I who am going mad? There it is, your annex, your sacred place of work, the anvil upon which you have tried to hammer the grief, and perhaps the humanity, from your soul. You told me I must never, ever enter that place, and I have never willingly disobeyed you, Nathaniel, until tonight. She retrieves the key from the drawer. As she enters the annex, she tries to give herself courage. She's just being silly, she tells herself. It's her condition making her overly sensitive. Surely she will discover that Nathaniel's work is completely innocent and worthwhile. He's a great man, and the works of great men are often misunderstood. This is wrong. She should turn back. But some inexorable force drives her on. It's a deep, nameless fear, an evil worm that has nodded her quietly, patiently for two years. No, she should stop. Do not pull the sheet away. Stay ignorant. But it is too late. She sees it, and her blood turns to ice. And in Nathaniel's private lab, she finds Adam's body in a stasis tank. She rushes into the cemetery in the storm with a shovel. She unearths and opens her son's coffin. And so Rebecca Essex runs from the ancient house of her husband's family across the cemetery, where the old dead bodies in their old rough graves seem to claw and pull at her. It cannot be, she thinks. Nathaniel could not do this. But there's only one way she will know. The wood of her son's coffin is soft and moldy. The lid opens like the mouth of a newborn babe about to take its first cry. But there is no cry, and there is no babe. Dear God, no! Nathaniel Essex has seen her. For a moment, his unblinking drive for scientific brilliance falters. Rebecca, wait! You don't understand. And perhaps he sees the true horror of where his obsession has led him. Our own son? How could you? How could you? But he was, he was already taken from us. I thought his death would not be in vain. If I could prevent others from dying like him. Apocalypse in human form in elaborate robes approaches from behind. Perhaps, sir, we should take your wife inside. Who? My name is Ensaba Noor. More importantly, I am someone very interested in your work. Someone who may yet be an invaluable ally. To be continued. Dun, dun, dun. 
job, everybody. Good job. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk. Let's talk about this story for just a minute. What are your thoughts on uh, further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix number one? I'm bad man. I love that Jean landed in the church and Scott just got dumped. This I the- was going <laughs> to say exactly that. I was like, well, for our most wild couple of the X-Men, the best part is, is that Scott just gets dropped in a sewer. Let's talk. Uh, let's talk Rebecca and Nathaniel for a minute. What are your thoughts on their relationship and this backstory added for Mr. Sinister? This <laughs> is dark. Uh, I'm unsure exactly why it is that Rebecca is still with Nathaniel. He kind of treats her like garbage. Brilliant. He's a brilliant man. He does treat her like garbage, but it is also 1859 where women literally can't do anything unless they're married to a man. You're right. You're right. So, so, uh, again, like, obviously terrible, but she's (laughs) making the best of what circumstance she is in. Especially as a gentlewoman who has no other skill set. Right. Yes. <laughs> she breaks into um, the room, which but... I was like, this is a moment I want to cheer for her and be like, yeah, break into that shit. You know, it's creepy. You know, he's doing some weird shit in there. Like, check it yeah. out. Yeah. I love that right before she's like, well, surely it'll just be innocent. And, and <laughs> yeah, you know, what, possibly be anything. What's the worst it could be? Do, uh, do, exactly. what, what, do, what's the worst it could be that he's doing this secret experiment in the annex on his dead child oh <laughs> like, my god yeah this man this man i love i love that in a backstory that's supposed to kind of like humanize sinister a little <laughs> bit it just makes him exponentially worse than he had yeah. ever been at this point like, in the stories really yeah yeah he's like, not oh, an inhuman monster he's a very human monster and that's the worst thing about him yes and and also like his whole like diatribe at like the royal scientist thing or whatever <laughs> when he's like the people who are racially beneficial will yeah. and i'm like oh I appreciate that he got booed for that, and everybody's like, "Boo this man!" and like throwing cans at his head. <laughs> and he's like, "I'm a genius! I'm a genius!" <laughs> Took a I, bottle to the I head love when Charles he unveils his Frankenstein monster because I, I read the the comic, you know, prepping for this, and he just looks so proud in that he's like, <laughs> "And look, like he's unveiling like a new car," and everybody's just like horrified. <laughs> Oh, it doesn't, make sucks. Him, it doesn't make him pause or reflect in any way, shape, or form that all of <laughs> his heroes and his his colleagues they all are disgusted by the moral constraints. <laughs> oh yeah, the problem is I must just get rid of my morals if it defends people so much. Oh. And and I mean, just like looking looking at it from like what's happening now in the comics, especially with like Beast, it's like oh yeah. Science definitely, like, when you get, like, real into it and you, like, remove morality from science when you're just trying to discover, yeah, it's fucked up. Yeah. It's the real villain. Yeah. So there's a lot of modern continuity added into all of this. But this series at the time was pretty revolutionary because it's giving us the origins for the first time. This series came out just before the Rise of Apocalypse series, which delves into Ensobiner's history. So it's setting a lot of up, uh, stuff up about what happens to Apocalypse in ancient, e- ancient Egypt. Uh, and we're seeing this picked up on in the modern comics with the exploration, mostly by Kieran Gillen, of the character Dr. Stasis. 
I, I guess uh, uh, Jerry Duggan's doing a lot with this character as well. He is the clone of Sinister who has a spade on his head and he's kind of frozen. It's like this version of Sinister who's like creating clones of his wife and child to try to perfect what went wrong in the past. Uh, yeah. Interesting interpretation. It's like one variation of Sinister. I don't know if you guys have thoughts there. I do. I think the weirdest thing about this comic in light of very current continuity is that this Rebecca is like who Mother Righteous is now. And that that is like a I, I've I've read this comic after reading the revelations about apocalypse from Hickman. I've read it after reading Magneto Testament. I've read it after several major retcons to characters in it. But this is the first time reading it with like that really annoying British lady from X Men comics is Rebecca. <laughs> <laughs> like that's like that's a really interesting wrinkle. I don't know how to feel about it. it doesn't really change her character in this at all, of course. I love I'm, I love I'm that. I'm grateful one. to see that she's here haunting Sinister into the very far future for his crimes in a past life for both of them. I love that instead of sounding like a gentle lady, Mother Righteous, like like Rebecca did, Mother Righteous sounds like she's working in the sewers of London. Like, oi, governor. She has a very low class British accent, which I yeah, like. She's I got that, that cockney. Uh, Alicia, was this your first time reading this particular issue? And if so, thoughts on uh, Rebecca Essex? Um, I I like Rebecca because I think that she's, you know, I, well, first of all, I feel sad for her. So then I'm like, oh, no, poor girl. Like, you just sit alone at your son's grave all day. But I like that she's, like, taking the initiative and that she's not afraid to tell Nathaniel, like, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> you're crazy. Look at your shit. Yeah, like, that she's basically saying, look at your shit, Nathaniel. Like, I'm interested to see, because I haven't read anything else, like, just this one so far. So I'm interested to see, like, if she, how she feels when he becomes the sinister that he is, you know, and, like, what happens with Apocalypse and all of that and, like, how that plays out for her, but... I'm not going to spoil anything for you, but I'm excited to see your reactions as we move yeah, forward. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, too, to just think about, like, Sinister as he was before Sinister, like, as Nathaniel, and, like, having a relationship that he does kind of seem to care about. Like, he, it feels like he genuinely cares about her, like, he cares about his madness, but he also genuinely cares about her, and I feel that little, like, conflict, and I think that that's why she can talk to him and, like, kind of say how she feels to him because she knows that even though he is committed, fully committed to his science, that he does actually love her. So she can like tell him, look at your shit and he won't like completely flip out only like semi flip out. The actual use of Charles Darwin here as the theorist who is uh, promoting ideas of evolution uh, and then countering that with Essex and also Apocalypse, who have very different versions of what evolution means for them and what survival of the fittest means. Uh, thoughts on the inclusion of uh, Charles Darwin in this series? Uh, Richard Owen should have been the character. <laughs> it, should, it would have been way funnier to have that guy, just because he was like notoriously a complete asshole who would just like go to extraordinary lengths to try to prove his colleagues wrong about things. <laughs> I like that um, that in this story essex's opinion of darwin is is pretty strong but in recent continuity he disparages darwin and babbage 
when he's talking about a Charles and Charles is a fool and you're like my life is forever plagued by men named Charles he's <laughs> I love that I love that they worked in Babbage for that comic because that's just yes. so funny. he's just mad at the guy who made the adding machine he's like <laughs> yeah he doesn't realize his adding machines will one day rule the world and kill us all. And it's like, man, he put like an abacus in front of you and you flipped out. <laughs> but, but but also I think it just kind of speaks to Sinister's ego where he now thinks yeah. that he's better than the people that he had originally looked up to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sinister mm-hmm. set in this era as well, which is like colonial Britain, which is like going forth and seeing the rest of the world as savages that need to like be uh, conquered and controlled. Looking at him in like that entitlement era, like his grief over his one child allows him the permission he needs in himself to like experiment on other people and to hack them apart and dig up graves, you know? And the thing is, I, I, I think that then le- leads into, you know, as we know later in, in Sinister Things, like his relationship with the Black Womb, where, who she has a little less of a moral code about like using her, you know, unborn and dead children for for experiments where she's like yeah i'll just keep having these babies if you want to keep experimenting on them sounds great uh go um, see uh go see the patreon episode on the black womb with anthony Oliveira and sarah century <laughs> that was an episode i'll say that uh we got to check that one out we got to meet little danny here sarah do you remember danny no <laughs> Danny, Danny goes on, and this is a spoiler. Danny goes on at the end of this series to emigrate to the United States and take the last name Summers for himself. Right, because there's uh, so much Summers. I know. Oh my and god! Then so he much like, Summers. He likely goes on to marry the Black Womb, and it's, it's good move, bud. <laughs> Have fun with that. You know, it's just like you really lucked out, man. You really lucked out. She's the Black uh, Womb. What is Apocalypse's deal in this particular issue? This is the era where Apocalypse was like an ancient evil who like had been like every god uh, in every civilization. He sleeps for a while, wakes up, and then like fucks everything up and goes back to sleep again. This is, we've had a lot of a lot of uh, things added to Apocalypse in recent years. But what's his motivation here? What's his deal? Fuck shit up. Just- Yep, messing with Sinister. It's one of his favorite things to do because Sinister is so full of himself and Apocalypse is obviously so full of himself. But I think he looks at Sinister as kind of a child and he's just like, time to exploit. Yeah, I feel like he's like, he has a mission and he knows that like he can kind of use Sinister to accomplish his goals without having to like work too hard himself to do it. So he's going to like, my again don't really know but my assumption is that he wants to like hype sinister up and be like yeah you're so great keep doing my work for me but it's also interesting he seems to be interested in sinister's work his madness because he is combining strength from other Mm. species to make a superhuman and it has these predictions on the future of evolution and where mutants will go apocalypse being a mutant and especially with the retcons of okara and krakoa like he's seen mutant civilizations he's he's been through this so like hey yeah you crazy guy that is pushing into some real territory i'm gonna hype that shit up this series almost seems to be setting up the uh the idea that apocalypse doesn't know that he's a mutant yet 
uh, like he's hearing about this scientist and it's going to allow him to discover what he is. So there's like a, there's, there's almost a, him searching for his cause. And like, this is also his time, right? He's got like guys like Ozymandias under the ground, carving out shit and t- telling him how great he is. <laughs> it's also just so interesting. Like Apocalypse, as someone who is very powerful and loves to show his great feats of strength, also continually needs to have like these underlings actually do the work for him. The uh the backstory for Cootie Tremble, Demanda. <laughs> as I I went into a lot of research for this character as an award winning actor, <laughs> I um like really delved deep. I did not. Um, uh, I think he I think he dies in the next issue. He because he his 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 uh like um marvel thinks i actually did look him up but it it only says he has one appearance so i think he like dies off panel you'll see him later in this series but i'll uh i'll leave it to be a surprise i think he got a real bad std one time and so they (laughs) gave him the nickname cootie tremble which (laughs) he's like the he's like the artful dodger oh yeah i mean he's yeah he's definitely the you know the guy from uh it's like Pied Piper, the the yeah the the Dodger from from Oliver. It is very very that trope. And then we got the Marauders. Uh, did <laughs> that surprise so anybody to see the this, name this, Marauders here? No, it's so funny. The sister <laughs> named his team the Marauders because one time he saw a British gang. What like he wasn't even there <laughs> when Apocalypse killed them all. The way that like Marauders has to be deep, right? It's like it can't just be like, yeah, that's what they are. They're the Marauders. It's like just oh. one word, and everybody's like, let's put some backstory on that because we need it. This this whole series, I don't want to give any spoilers for Alicia, but this whole series is full of like, and that's why Jimmy Olsen wears a bow tie. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. really good. Yeah. <laughs> also, I the... to oh yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, so like this is the third Peter Milligan comic I've talked about on podcast this weekend. <laughs> and oh, I gotta say, he's always <laughs> off on one just like this. And it's honestly, I respect it. I really enjoy his writing. But uh, yeah, this is maybe not my favorite work of his. But I gotta say, he did just jump into the X universe and do what he could to just like throw pieces around, I think. And I, I respect that too. It's a pretty fun series. It's well narrated. Yeah. The other big juxtaposition, and this this is the last thing I'll bring up, is the idea of classism, like very clearly laid out. Gene lands in like the fancy church and Cyclops just dropped in the sewer, right? You got the high society (laughs) and then the people underground who have no resources and are just pulled away and no one notices. (laughs) I wish that Cyclops had looked up and been like, all right, you took your best shot. Now it's my (laughs) turn. (laughs) Uh, Okay, any final thoughts on uh, issue number one? I love the art. Yeah, I just want to say art. that. Shout out to who? Who's the John artist? Paulion. Yeah, yeah, John Paulion, the, the icon. He's amazing. Klaus Jansen on inks, and even Summers mm-hmm. on colors. Like it's really, it's a strong team. Yeah. It's incredible. Any others? Okay, we'll see where things go uh, in our next recording, which we will announce soon. I hope this is a fun surprise for people. This is a fun way to introduce Apocalypse and Mr. Sinister to my show, where we get to go to this insane backstory. Uh, Okay, as we are wrapping up, where can people find each of you online? And anything you want to plug, we're going to put this out on November 6th in conjunction with the episode on Fantastic Four number 102 which was a wild ride with uh, with my special guests, uh, Mariwa Ayadele, Dotuna Kande, and Torin Grandbuck. Uh Sarah and then Demanda? 
Yeah, my um, horror podcast, uh, Decoded Horror Channel, since it's still for me, October. Sorry, listeners, you're in November now. But I was going to say that. And then we just did a bunch of horror interviews on Bitches on Comics. So I think everybody should check that out because it was a lot of work and it's like 13 hours of talking. So enjoy. (laughs) Uh, And uh, Demanda. Uh, so hi, I'm Demanda Martini. You can find me across all social media at Demanda Martini, D-M-A-N-D-A-M-A-R-T-I-N-I. Um, I uh, just won uh, a lovely competition, which means that you can catch me the first Saturday of every month at Crazy Aunt Helen's in uh, D.C. Uh, as a part of the Wild and Wacky Brunch cast. So uh, again, if you have been looking for a reason to come find me in person, uh, you now have a permanent spot for an entire 13 months to come see me. So uh, yeah, come find me. Fantastic. Uh, and uh, Steve and then Arturo. Hello, it's me, Steve, and uh, you can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky currently at Howdy Duda. That's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. It is a play on Howdy Doody. Um, I'm on a few other social media sites, but I'm not very active on most of them. I'm unfortunately mostly still active on Twitter, and I don't have uh, much to plug in the future, except for that I will be on a few upcoming trials on this very show, Great Malkin Lane. Uh, I do highly recommend going and checking out uh, Bitches on Comics. Is a, it's something you like need to do if you're listening to this. And uh, I don't know, listen to There Existed an Addition to Blood by Clipping. Great album. It's still October for me. Uh, fabulous. Arturo? Yeah. And I'm a doodle. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on, well, it's November. So I'm not sure if Twitter still is up and running, but if it is, I'm there. Uh, and Instagram. And that's it for now. Um, although I'm probably going to move somewhere else because Twitter is burning down by the moment. And I've got nothing really to plug. So I will continue my crusade to raise awareness for the Wheel of Time. The Wheel series. of Time. The Wheel of Time. <laughs> I want to text you about it every day. Oh my God. Please do. I've started. Okay. So I, I've read the entire series and I am now revisiting it through audiobooks and just. I've, I picked up the prequel and I'm just like thrilled to crack it. Wait, to like are you, are you two stuff. doing a Wheel of Time book club? And can I get in on this? Yeah, you can get in on it. Um, <laughs> that's our new podcast we just started. I mean, I would love to just talk about the Wheel of Time with you. <laughs> Watch this space. Uh, and then lastly, uh, Justin and Alicia. Yeah, I'm Alicia. I'm Justin. We're the Ex Wife Podcast. You can find us on the internet at the ex wife podcast, T H E X W I F E, as in X Men, not former wife. Um, you know us, we're here all the time. Yeah, we're here. Um, we love it here. Justin, we got anything? Some, some comics. Special? <laughs> you want to see shit? We're talking about comics all the time, every week. Some, some, some weeks later than others, but every week. <laughs> Uh, it's such a joy to see you all. I'll, I'll, for listeners, we're recording this on Sunday morning. Uh, we're all like a little hungover. Some of us are still drinking, not me. But <laughs> we're, we're, Some it's of us are about a, to start drinking. <laughs> it's such a good way to uh, spend my day before I have to go parent all day. This was a lovely little interlude. 
Uh, big stuff coming up on the show. I am probably off Twitter as soon as well. We've been talking for a full year on my show. People are like, Twitter, if it still exists. Twitter, if it hasn't burned down yet. And it's just progressively gotten worse over the last 12 months. We'll see what happens. Anyway, That's find me on problem. Instagram, Graham underscore lane. The next episode coming out immediately after this will be uh, fe- featuring Magneto and the Submariner fighting the FF in FF 103, featuring my guests, Jeremy Whitley and Alex Segura. Uh, I get to fangirl out over Jeremy Whitley who is one of the best queer uh, writer of queer characters uh, in the last several years. Uh, So go listen to that and uh, we'll do another script reading sometime. Uh, Thanks everybody. Thanks for hanging out. We'll see you back here next week on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. Grey Malkin Lane is produced and recorded in Salt Lake City, Utah with music and editing done by my husband, Michael Bell and promo art done by the incredible Seth Martell. Look for us on Patreon, where we are releasing weekly episodes about obscure characters and facts. Uh, It's a great way to participate with the podcast for only just a couple of dollars a month, and it helps support what we are doing here. Also, the best way you could help Graham Elkin Lane is by sharing and liking and subscribing, but also please leave us a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'll see you back here next time on Graham Elkin Lane. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich, flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.